This video is the culmination of several years of work. I initially critiqued each of the games in the Batman Arkham series in their own separate videos. These were usually spaced apart by anywhere between two and six months. This video is the culmination of all of that work. All four critiques are in this video. Certain edits have been made, such as removing the intros and outros to make it more watchable in a single sitting. With that being said, it's important to note that I will spoil pretty much everything that ever happens in these games. So if you have not played any of them, I highly recommend that you do that before watching this video. And of course, I'd like to dedicate this project to Khaleesi, my dearly beloved dragon who passed away earlier this year. She's in several of the videos you're about to watch, so just know that this one for Khaleesi. But with that said, thank you for being here. Thank you for watching. I love you all. Enjoy. Batman Arkham Asylum launched in 2009 to critical acclaim thanks to its dark and gritty story while implementing fun and engaging gameplay systems, all including and wrapped around a revolutionary combat system that was known as the Free Flow Combat System, which games even to this day seek to emulate. It was also one of the best looking games that had ever been released at the time that it launched, thanks to its very efficient and powerful and effective use of the Unreal Engine, the very same engine that was used in the Bioshock games, which is why at times they bear a striking resemblance. Now before we jump into it, I think that I should communicate clearly my standards and what I did when playing the game so that you can understand where I'm coming from when I make the criticisms and uh, statements that I'm about to make. First things first, I played through Batman Arkham Asylum on the hardest difficulty that they would allow, and I recommend that if you are going to go back and play this game yourself, that you would do the same, because at its core, all of these games have a very robust combat system, and if you play it on the harder difficulties, then you get to play it the way that the designer intended. You use all of the abilities, use them in tandem, and you actually feel like a superhero by the end of the game once you've mastered it. You don't rely on lower health bars and handicaps in in order to make the game playable for you. You actually have to progress the way that they want you to before you can get to the end. I also primarily focused on the story. I did do some trophy hunting and I did do some of the extra challenges that you unlock along the way. However, it was not a priority for me. Back in the day when this game initially launched, I actually did 100% this game on my dad's old work PC that I was able to play the game on. But for this time around, I didn't feel like it was necessary. Been there, done that. I played through the game on PC and used a mouse and keyboard as my main inputs. And that sounds very random, I'm sure, but I promise you there is a reason I'm telling you that and we're gonna loop back around to it later. But with all of this knowledge in our minds, let's just jump right on into it. Now, the first thing that has to be said when discussing Batman Arkham Asylum and really any of the Batman Arkham games is that it's an incredibly gritty Batman retelling. It's not a cartoony retelling. It's not a Tim Burton retelling. This is a dark, grounded, gritty retelling of uh, classic Batman stories with a rock steady twist on them. And they actually went and hired a man named Paul Dini, who is a staff writer on DC's boards and has experience working with the Batman franchise. So they have people involved in the writing process who know what they're doing and work with Batman extensively. And you can really tell in not just Batman Arkham Asylum, but in all of the games within the franchise. 
Nowadays, it's not that big of a deal that a game is gritty and grounded and has dark elements to it. However, at the time, the idea of a Batman game coming out and not being a happy-go-lucky, feel-good game was a little bit shocking to the system. I remember when it first came out, my parents were a little stunned at some of the reviews and what the cover art was on the back of the case. It was very dark and Joker uh, kills people and then you see murders take place. It's not gory, but there is dark and mature content. And it's something that for a lot of people they didn't see coming and in the case of my parents initially were not supportive of. Now it can't be ignored that there is a striking tonal and thematic resemblance between Batman Arkham Asylum and The Dark Knight, which of course launched in 2008 to critical acclaim all over the place. Now Batman Arkham Asylum launched, as I said, in 2009. Now I'm not saying that Rocksteady was talking with Christopher Nolan's crew during development, but rather it's pretty clear that DC, being the higher-ups, being the people in control, made a very conscious decision to take a darker approach to Batman, and I have to say it works. It's unclear when Rocksteady got rights to Batman, but it's safe to assume that it was three or four years before the release of the game, if not further back. And so that would put it at around, or at least, 2005 when DC decided to give Rocksteady permission to realize this darker vision of their flagship franchise. And more than anything else, I think all of this should be accredited to Paul Dini, who's a staff writer that worked at Rocksteady during the development of these Batman games. It's unclear if he's still there now, but he has extensive experience working in comic book narratives and specifically Batman, uh, allowing them to have deep insight into the lore of Batman's world and then also into the DC universe as a whole. Now, Batman's always been dark, sure, but not necessarily outside of the comics. Just look at the Tim Burton movies that came out in the late 80s and 90s. It's highly goofy and very, very cringy by today's standards, and sure, there were elements of dark tones and themes, but it was all portrayed and presented in a cartoony and goofy way to make it more palatable to audiences at that time. Now all of this brings us to the discussion of villains within Batman as a whole, but also specifically within Batman Arkham Asylum. And that's because for DC, it tends to be the case that the villains are the centerpiece of their narratives and the heroes sort of take a backseat to them. Now we'll talk about this more in just a moment, but first I wanna just give a quick rundown on what each of the villains are like within Batman Arkham Asylum. The main villain is the Joker, of course, and he's just as goofy and fun as always, but he's very clearly dangerous. In fact, in the opening sequence, we see him literally strapped into a straitjacket as he makes remarks about the guards walking by, he makes death threats to them, and then after he breaks out, we see the effect that he has on the inmates, where it actually leads to the death of several individuals within just an hour and a half of the opening of the game. As the game goes on, we see him not just occasionally murder or recommend that his henchmen murder for him. We see actual damage inflicted. We see psychological torment inflicted on his behalf. We see horrible, horrible things. And while it's true that the Joker doesn't tend to get his own hands dirty unless he absolutely has to, we do see a couple of moments when he's willing to get nitty gritty and it's terrifying when he does. 
This balance has always been something that's very difficult for game developers to toe because when you have a villain that's goofy or that is at least somewhat sympathetic or enjoyable, even likable to the viewer, it's a bad idea often to show them doing something truly horrendous and terrible because immediately it pulls you out. It's a little bit of a shock to the system, like a splash of cold water early in the morning. And so you tend to couch the approach and couch the acts of the villains in order to to make it a little bit more palatable. And in this case, that is certainly done, and it's done perhaps to maintain the T for Teen rating on the box, which certainly helped the game's sales at the time, but it's also done in order to make sure that people remember this is a comic book uh, series. This is not Desert Storm. It's okay for things to not be super, super serious. We can infer the damage that's being implied. We don't necessarily need to see it on screen. The things we do see on screen, however, can be disturbing when they happen, such as at the very end of the game, we do see the Joker biologically altering his body in order to have a physical influence over Batman to the point where he feels as though he can take over Gotham and finally realize all these dreams and hopes and desires that he's dreamt of. It's such an extreme alteration that his bones are literally poking out of his skin. This is what we call a compound fracture. It's not fun to look at. And understandably, once the game ends and we see the Joker on the other side of this Titan uh, enhancement, shall we say, we see him horribly sick and going through a very painful remission. And of course, the setup to Batman Arkham City is that the Joker is still poisoned and healing and coming down from the effects of that injection that he took. But he's certainly not the only villain. There's many others, such as Harley Quinn, who is very ditzy and not what I would consider a serious threat, even though she does seem to be totally out of her whacker. But we also run into Zaz, who on the other side is not very ditzy or fun, but is totally insane and I would argue is easily the most underutilized character in this entire game. He has so much potential as a mass murderer serial killer who's unbelievably crazy that the fact that they don't use him to his full potential is a little frustrating. He's basically used as a tutorial early in the game and that's about it. Thankfully they remedied this in the follow-up games but once again that's going to be in a future video. If you want to see those follow-up critiques let me know in the comment section and subscribe so you see when they finally come out. We also have Scarecrow in this game who actually has a very large presence within the game's story and this is just me, this is purely my opinion, but Scarecrow seems to me to be easily the most disappointing character in the entirety of the Batman universe, save for some very obscure characters that you probably could dig up on Google. His premise is so cool. He's a guy that controls others through fear. He can distort reality through biological weapons, and not to mention he just looks terrifying, but no matter what, he always seems to fall flat. Now in this game specifically, he never actually does anything really evil. All he does is pokes people with needles. It's implied or inferred that he might kill some people or that the poison gas does kill people, but it's always indirectly. He never is getting his own hands dirty. He's just spraying them with a gas or injecting them with some serum that eventually causes them to distort reality to the point where they effectively kill themselves. It's not the direct evil that we see inferred and implied through the Joker or through other villains within the Batman universe, even people like Poison Ivy or Croc. 
Now, in Batman Arkham Asylum, this is about the extent of his evil deeds. Once again, we never see him do anything truly horrible, so the threat is always very, very minimal. The only thing he does is inject us or we get a gas applied to us where we start to see a distorted version of the game's world and we have to go through a mini game in order to fight against it. And it's cool. It offers some shakeup to the game's monotonous uh, look and stylings within the asylum itself. But at its core, it's not very interesting. And this is really the frustrating thing with Scarecrow is that he looks scary, there's potential here, and some of these sequences could have been really, really cool. And in fact, there's one sequence where you go back and you relive your parents' murder, and that actually is well done and was my favorite interaction with Scarecrow, but that's really it. It's not gameplay, it's purely narrative-based. Whenever they try to use Scarecrow for a gameplay sequence, it just ends up being sort of bland, and then reskinned enemies come out that look like skeletons, and it's just kind of weird. And the issue at its core is just that whenever you have a character like this, a villain or an NPC that comes along and you can tell right off the bat the only reason they exist is to break up the monotony. They don't actually have any intrinsic or inherent value. Everything just falls apart. The stakes lower and the player mentally checks out because there's no real need for them to be invested. They just need to get through this sequence and move on because they know it's not going to have any overwhelming weight within the story. We also run into Clayface, though very, very briefly and very indirectly, and if you aren't paying attention, you aren't even gonna notice that he's here. We run into Killer Croc, and once again, he's a mini-boss in a way, where we just run through some tunnels and try to avoid him, but it's really a sequence. Once you figure out the gimmick, it's incredibly easy to bypass, and it loses all the stress that I believe was the entire point of putting him in the game to begin with. And then of course we have Poison Ivy, who is just as dangerous, creepy, and sexy as ever, but no one actually holds a candle to the Joker. He takes the cake and is, throughout the entire game, the only character you keep waiting to see more of. You desire to, to see more, to hear more, he really steals the show. And yes, I know that the Riddler is also technically in this game, but I'm not even going to dignify that with a response because he never shows up and all you do is steal his trophies that he leaves out in the open. It's stupid. But all this brings me to the question, why are villains so important to the point where it seems to be the only focus of the video thus far? And while this is a sub point, it's nonetheless crucial as a question with regards to not just this game, but all superhero games and stories. The villains are what shape the experience. Now this first point is probably going to get me in some trouble, but to be honest, I don't really care. DC seems to rely much more on its villains as opposed to its heroes, whereas Marvel, on the other hand, relies on its heroes and much less on the villains. And this is, of course, for the most part, there are exceptions to the rule with both of these. But Batman, being a DC series, always seems to center around the villain. The Joker is always the star of the show, whereas on Marvel, uh, Marvel side of things, you look at Spider-Man, you look at Guardians of the Galaxy, you look at Thor, you look at Iron Man, whoever you're talking about, they tend to steal the show, and the villain is just sort of a secondary contextual wrapping that they put around it. Now, to me, this always just seemed to be a matter of relatability, and I know we're getting sidetracked, but I think that this is pertinent. 
To be honest, I can relate to a broke and relationship handicapped Peter Parker, but I do have trouble relating with an invincible alien or a billionaire playboy with dead parents. This means that the villains are what hold the story together, and quite often within the DC Universe and in Batman Arkham Asylum specifically, they do just that. Now, Batman Arkham Asylum does not try to be an intensely emotional experience or a narrative experience, even at all. It's there, certainly. There is a story and there is lore to find if you want to find it, but it's not the focus. It's not the focal point. What is the focal point is the dark, gritty world and the people that live within it. And Batman is constantly fighting against the tide of evil that takes the form of these super villains, such as Crocs, such as uh, the Joker, Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy, and the like. Part of it is the cult of personality that surrounds a character like the Joker. He's just fascinating, sympathetic, and yet interesting all at the same time. But at the same time, it's also a matter of the world that they put it in. Marvel's world tends to be very bright and uh, hopeful, whereas DC's is much darker, grittier, and what some would call grounded. Now, it's really just a matter of personal preference as to which that you prefer, but to me, within this game specifically, I think it works very, very well, and I'm very glad to see that they didn't try to turn the world into something that it wasn't. They embraced what Batman is and was, and it works for the better. And all of this on behalf of Paul Dini, who is the writer that made sure all of this was consistent with the lore and with the world that Batman lives within. So thankfully, Rocksteady approached each of these characters, not just the main villains or the main NPCs, but all of the smaller interactions and the lore within it with a healthy dose of skepticism, and they embrace the danger that these creatures honestly do exhibit, and it allows you to become immersed in the world, which is phenomenal. Now, immersion is not always the end-all be-all in superhero games, because by definition, you are already doing things that are far beyond what a normal person is capable of doing. However, it is possible to become immersed if the world that they put you in is believable and consistent with the story that they're telling, a perfect example being the recently released Spider-Man. Now, Batman Arkham Asylum manages to do this in the sense that you are immersed in the world, though not necessarily within the protagonist in the form of Bruce Wayne. And I just have to say that this world that they give you is so intoxicating with its lore that I can't get enough, which is why I'm honestly looking forward to covering the other games in the series, which once again, if you want to see those, make sure you subscribe. All in all, the story of Batman Arkham Asylum is efficient and it gets the job done. It gives you context and frames the characters in an accurate and honest way so that you can play through the game as Rocksteady designed it and wanted you to see the world. But really, it's just a prologue to the story that they wanted to tell in the sequel, which is why I'm not going to dwell on it too much. But nonetheless, I'll run through it quickly. At the opening of the game, we see that Batman has captured the Joker, and later on we find out that it was relatively easy and he didn't put up much of a fight, which allows Batman to feel some sort of uh, skepticism as to whether or not the Joker wanted this to happen or if there's some other plot that's going on, which indeed, as we find out very soon within the game, is exactly the case. 
Batman takes him to Arkham Asylum to lock him up with the other crazy people that he's captured. And soon after, the Joker breaks out and we find out that he had planned this all along for months and months and months. And he's been doing all of this so that he can obtain a certain compound known as Titan that one of the scientists has been working on, which in its current state is uh, effectively a biological mutation agent, which allows an individual to become horribly mutilated, gaining all sorts of power and abilities that they wouldn't have had before. The game effectively consists of Batman trying to chase down the Joker, beat everyone up, lock them back up in their cages, and eventually trying to obtain the Titan virus before the Joker can use it against the entirety of Gotham City. At the very end of the game, we run into the Joker who injects himself with the Titan virus and he becomes horribly mutilated and it climaxes in one of the worst possible boss fights I've ever encountered in the entirety of my experience playing video games. But don't worry, we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. And then at the very end, the Joker gets conquered and we find out that everyone got locked back up. The Joker is going through a very painful and sickening remission. And then after the credits roll, depending on your luck, you'll see one of three cutscenes where a crate of Titan is floating outside of the asylum in the little harbor surrounding it. And you will see either Croc, Scarecrow, or Bane grab the crate, implying that there's still Venom out there, and one of these three characters is going to be using it in the follow-up game, which, as you can imagine, is certainly the case. It's a simple story, but effectively all it does is give context and gives the player a reason to explore the world that they give you and to use the combat system that they designed specifically for the game, which is a perfect segue into the gameplay. Now the gameplay of Batman Arkham Asylum is fairly straightforward and in general is going to break into three basic categories. Combat, exploration, and puzzles. And quite often, all of these three categories mix together to create a hybrid system which allows for certain systems and upgrades that were unlocked for specific uses to be mixed together and used in tandem. Now we're going to go through each of these individually and talk about how they interact with each other and what they do well and don't do well. And so to begin, let's talk about the combat. Now the combat within Batman Arkham Asylum breaks into two subcategories, and that effectively is what I'm going to call brute combat or hand-to-hand. -hand. It's basically what happens when you cease to be stealthy, everyone becomes aware of your position, and you're just fist fighting. And then the second subcategory is stealth, and this, as you would imagine, is stealth gameplay where you're trying to avoid being detected, using all of the tools and gadgets at your disposal to dispose of the enemy's and brutes that you come across throughout the level. Now usually the game is going to throw one of these two situations at you. It's going to either ask you to get through a horde of enemies or ask you to stealthily find your way through the level without alerting anybody. And usually it's doing this by having a hostage or some terrible situation where if you are discovered they're going to enact some sort of catastrophic consequence that will punish you for being discovered. To be honest, it makes sense in the game's world and lore that there would be situations where Batman needs to be very, very stealthy, but where the game really shines is in its brute combat, the hand-to-hand -hand when you're getting messy with it. Now at the time, the combat system was revolutionary and it was advertised as a free flow combat system that's heavily reliant on rhythm and pace. So once you get the hang of it, it becomes very, very easy and almost second nature. It just flows and it makes sense. 
It's for this reason that I heavily recommend, as I said earlier, you playing through any of these Arkham games on the hardest possible difficulty. It's gonna get rid of the notification indicator telling you when an enemy is attacking, so you actually have to read the situation and their body language, and it leads to you playing the game, in my opinion, the best possible way. Now what's really interesting is if you delve into the development interviews that the developers actually gave around the time of release and shortly after once they won several Game of the Year rewards, it's actually interesting to learn that the combat system within Batman Arkham Asylum was initially pitched and designed as a rhythm minigame effectively. So there would be music for each of the opponents you're facing. Usually there would only be one or two at a time and you would have to hit certain inputs on each beat. Sometimes an upbeat, sometimes a downbeat, sometimes both. And when two enemies came into the fray, you would have to go and balance two different rhythms in order to fight them both at the same time. Now, during the course of development, they deemed that system to be too niche and to have too steep a learning curve. However, there's still remnants of it within the current system. As I said, it's very rhythmic, and once you get the feel for it, you have the hang of it. You, it's something that you can't really unlearn. Once you're very good at a Batman Arkham Asylum style combat system, you're going to be good at it regardless of what game you're playing. Honestly, it's really hard to describe because it's incredibly simple. Effectively, all there are are four basic interactions and components that make up the combat system. There's the attack, dodge, counter and what I will call an interruption mechanic where this could be flashing somebody with your cape or using a tool or a batarang to interrupt whatever activity that they were about to enact. You effectively run around the arena fighting and attacking, occasionally dodging when an attack is brought in, and then occasionally you'll also counter depending on which enemy is doing it. Some of these lower level enemies can't be countered but can be dodged, and some of them have to be dodged before they can be countered. And so as you go through the game and get experience with all of these different subgroups and sub-enemy types, you learn their weaknesses and learn how to take them down and so you start mixing and matching these four basic components in order to create something incredibly fluid. Now the game also heavily rewards you for not taking damage or any hits during the course of this. The higher your combo counter can get, the better. As you play and bounce between enemies, your hit counter will increase, allowing you to use finisher moves and gain more XP exponentially. And this XP is then used to unlock new abilities that are either used in basic combat or in stealth and sometimes both. These abilities can increase overall health or allow you to uh, discover inverted takedowns or even changing the threshold for finisher moves from eight successive strikes to five, which makes it at times feel almost over overpowered. And once you combine all of these different mechanics and abilities with the aforementioned enemy variety, it actually works very, very well despite its initial simplicity. With systems like these, it's very important that you push the game to its limits and that you don't take it for granted. When you set a game like this on an easier difficulty setting and you can afford to take certain hits or Batman becomes so overpowered that he can knock somebody out in a single hit, it decreases the value of all of these different systems. So instead of having to rely on mixing and matching the four aforementioned subsystems, you then have to rely on one or two and the game never pushes you or challenges you. You simply button mash and then move on.
I know they can be triggering for some people at times to hear that there is a quote unquote right way to play a game. But in this case, I honestly and fervently believe that there is a right way to play a game with a free flow system. And that is on the hardest possible difficulty so that there are consequences to failing the very basic and simple system that they've set up. Now, in the first couple hours of playing the game, this is going to feel very, very simple, but the game does ramp it up as you go through and they start mixing together many different enemy types, which is where the real variety and interesting moments come into play. And to be honest, the system that Rocksteady ended up with is actually fairly robust and even to this day is actively being copied or at least is serving as an inspiration for combat systems moving forward. However, I want to be clear, this is not without its issues. The first major problem that this free flow combat system in its current form in Batman Arkham Asylum runs into is that enemies stack themselves. And initially this doesn't seem like a major issue, but what it effectively means is that the enemies will not attack when they're not in view of the camera, except for brutes and gunmen who have sound cues. And in the case of brutes, they even require distance to be defeated. So I can forgive this individual instance. And so what this effectively means for the player is that when they're fighting a large group of enemies, it's going to feel very, very systematic. It's going to feel very mechanical. You're attacking one person. The other person doesn't start attacking you until the person you were just dealing with finishes their animation. Then they come in and then once they finish, the next person comes in, which once again plays into the rhythmic side of things because you can always rely on there being another group. And at times when you become overwhelmed, you can counterbalance this by pushing all of the different NPCs away from you so you really spread out the enemies. But at its core, it's still going to be a very rhythmic and simple process of when you're near this character, they will attack you. When you're far away, they'll run towards you so that they can attack you. It's incredibly predictable. So if you're not pushing yourself on the harder difficulty settings, it can feel very, very repetitive. Another issue is that by default, the inputs for counter and aiming and using your tools are actually the same. So for instance, when I am using a rope caster to travel through a hallway, that is typically brought out by holding down uh, trigger or in the case of PC, the right mouse button. And in the case of combat, what's actually gonna happen is when you want to counter, you're expected to tap this same button, this right mouse button and what that means is that occasionally you're going to be fighting a large horde of enemies and you're going to try to go in for a counter but instead batman is going to pull up the rope caster and take a shot which can ruin a large combo and even ruin the entire sequence meaning that you have to start over from a checkpoint it's incredibly frustrating and it's true it can be rerouted in the menu settings but by default this is what's set up when the game ships and so I feel as though it's fair to criticize. On console, when you're playing on a controller, this is not really an issue because, of course, you're dealing with square and triangle or X and Y, and so you never have this overlap in the same way that you have on PC. But on PC, it, even to this day, is an issue that I suggest you go into the menus when you first open the game and remedy. 
The game also has times when it doesn't feel the most responsive. In general, it's very, very snippy and it, it works quite well, but there are times, especially when there's large numbers of enemies on screen, where counters don't register properly, when dodges don't register properly, when you dodge at slightly an off angle and so a brute runs into you, causing you to stagger and take damage. And it can be very, very frustrating because at its core, a game's difficulty is reliant on the assumption that any damage and punishment inflicted upon the player is a result of their error, their issue. If they make a mistake, they're punished for it. But if damage and punishment is inflicted on a player that didn't do anything wrong and simply encountered this issue as a result of a glitch or some sort of error in the game's programming, it ceases to be challenging and instead becomes frustrating. Now, this is not just true of Batman Arkham Asylum, but it's true of every game that has ever had any sort of glitch issue or issue with the game's responsiveness in a fast-paced combat system. When you make a mistake, you should be punished for it, especially in high difficulty settings. But when you're playing through the game and you're doing a phenomenal job and then you still get punished because the game simply decided to screw you over, that ceases to be fun. Now all of this said, I really, really enjoy the free flow combat system that Rocksteady introduced with Batman Arkham Asylum. At the time, it was mind boggling that a system like this could be running as well as it did on consoles and on PC, even on Macs. But it certainly is the first generation of this technology. And at the time we were blown away by it, but looking back on it now, we can certainly see where Rocksteady was able to improve it moving forward in the franchise. Now, as for stealth, this is actually a very important element of the game's design. And effectively, it's to shake up the basic combat system, which certainly is fulfilling, but it does get monotonous at times. So with these stealth sequences, it also serves the narrative in the sense that Batman would not always be in need of just bashing people's heads in. At times, he would need to take a more careful approach, and these stealth sequences serve that very purpose. It's in these sequences that we actually use the tools that Batman has on his utility belt. Things like proximity mines, things like attraction collars, and all of these different things that you can use in order to lure certain enemies away from locations, take them out stealthily, and then move on to their buddies. Now, I never felt as though one tool was utterly useless and all of the others were useful, but rather I felt as though in these stealth sequences, there was never a mixture that was encouraged. It was always, you can use one of your tools and it will work just fine, but you have no need to really mix and match. And this is something that the follow-up games were able to fix. Once again, I don't want to get into that just yet. That will be for the next video. But it is nonetheless interesting to see that the foundation was laid, the groundwork was laid in this game, but they just didn't have enough time or they didn't delve into it enough to really polish out the system. Quite often what these stealth sequences turn into is simply Batman swinging around the room on the gargoyles way above any of the NPCs, waiting for them to become distracted or walk away from their buddies, at which point you swoop down to an inverted takedown and that's it. You just repeat the process going around the room and maybe occasionally you drop down and strangle somebody, but that's really about it. Later in the game they do challenge you and they do blow up some of the gargoyles so you can't use them and you have to stay stationary. This was really exciting when I came across it the first time and even still it's probably my favorite 
stealth sequence in the entirety of the game just because it shakes it up and forces you to think in a different way. There's actually some really cool things you can do with the tools that Rocksteady gives you, and it's unfortunate that they never push you or urge you or invite you to use those tools in creative ways. It's always up to the player to decide whether or not they want to. Now, it's impossible also to talk about stealth in any video game without discussing the AI, and what I'll say is that it's decent enough, but it's still quite stupid. What I mean by that is that it's not so stupid that you are torn out of the game. Really, what I did is when I was playing the game, I took it as the thugs just being really, really stupid. After all, they are criminals who are in a high security or perhaps even max security prison effectively. They're not geniuses across the board. So when they did something stupid or uh, ran apart from each other, separating out, it wasn't immersion breaking because it was blue. Believable. It did seem like something they would do, which I doubt is intentional, but nonetheless, it is a fun excuse that a player can tell themselves. Nonetheless, there are many times when I felt as though the AI should be able to see me, especially when you're using the grappling hook to swing up to gargoyles and you end up swinging right in front of somebody and they don't see you because the game doesn't register that animation from point A to point B as a movement of Batman. They just register point A and point B. So they don't actually see you when you're traveling on your grappling hook, which is a small detail, but it is very, very frustrating when you're trying to take the game very, very seriously and then the AI totally bugs out and can't figure out where you are, even though you were literally just feet away from their face. To counterbalance this feeling, I always play Batman Arkham Asylum on like the darkest brightness setting that I can possibly manage. I like to make these games look incredibly dark and grungy just because it helps me become even more immersed in them. I find it much more interesting to do that. It is more difficult, but once again, I think it's interesting if you put these sorts of handicaps on yourself, especially when the game is, is getting to the point where it feels as though it's easy if you've played it before. So once again, the stealth works just fine, but more than anything, it is a constant reminder that this was a good foundation laid by Rocksteady, but it certainly was setting up for something more. Now outside of combat, we have exploration, and this basically just consists of trophy hunting and getting to the next checkpoint in the story. It can be fun, but it's quite clearly not the intended focus of the game. There's not a whole lot of Easter eggs. There's not a whole lot of stuff to encourage you to do this. More than anything, it's just Riddler's trophies and Arkham lore objects, which are cool to find and were really the only thing that kept me going, but it's still not effective world building. It's just a Ubisoft collection fest. And beyond exploration, we also have puzzles, and this integrates with both of the other gameplay archetypes. Sometimes they work together, sometimes they work in tandem, sometimes they work totally separately. It really just depends on the sequence. But these puzzles can be anything uh, from just figuring out a riddle to unlock a Riddler trophy to learn more about the game's lore, or even to something like using several detective sequences that exist within the game uh, to discover some secret meeting or to progress with in the game's story, and quite often these consist of nothing more than finding uh, a certain place in the room that lights up a meter and then you hold down spacebar for a few seconds followed by following that trail until you reach another combat sequence and the whole process repeats. It is interesting, it shakes up the gameplay sequence, but it's not anything that's truly revolutionary. 
Batman, after all, is supposed to be the world's greatest detective, or at least that's what's on the tagline on a lot of the merchandise. And so it is interesting to see that they did include a detective sequence and system within the game, but it's not something that's dynamic. It's only used in scripted sequences, and even then, it's not particularly interesting. You're just discovering a particular object and then following a trail of that object to another location where the game loops back and relies on another one of usually the gameplay systems such as stealth or combat. It really doesn't do anything itself that's inherently interesting. It just serves as another way of getting you back to another one of the more interesting gameplay systems. And not to sound like a broken record, but this is something that the game's sequel, Batman Arkham City, greatly improved upon. And it's something that I am excited and certainly will be discussing in that video. Once again, subscribe if you want to see when that comes out. But all this brings me to perhaps my largest criticism of Batman Arkham Asylum, and it's a criticism that many other people have also expressed, but it is so glaring it's hard to ignore. And that is straight up, the boss fights suck. To be honest, the game doesn't really have any truly interesting boss sequences. Usually, they consist of just a simple gimmick, and that gimmick is repeated usually three times roughly, and then it concludes with some elaborate cutscene that was pre-rendered in 720p, meaning that it looked decent in 2009, but going on a decade later, it looks pretty rough, and it just falls flat. Take, for example, any of the Scarecrow sequences. All you do is run through a certain maze, ducking and waiting for his gaze to move past you. You sprint by. Occasionally, in some of the sequences, you'll fight NPCs, and then you move on. You continue the same thing. You turn over a flashlight. It shines on him, and then you're out of the level. That's, like, the entire thing. I'm not joking. Or with Bane, he's effectively just a really big version of some of the other enemies that you've been playing against, and then they mix in a bunch of smaller enemies to make it more interesting, or at least more chaotic at the same time. You fight him, you unplug certain tubes, and you continue beating him. You do this a few times, his health decreases, and then there's a cutscene that plays, and that's that. Or Killer Croc, where you go into the sewers and you find him in order to collect a certain substance that you need later on in the game and you're trying to keep your volume levels at a certain level so that you don't call attention to your location but it doesn't matter no matter how quiet you are killer croc is still going to find you and no matter how loud you are the result will be the same he pops up out of the water and runs at you from a fairly far distance giving you plenty of time to quick throw a batarang or to straight up aim yourself holding down either trigger or the right mouse button Throwing it right at him, he takes the hit, falls back in the water, and then you continue on your way. It's actually incredibly dull once you figure out the gimmick. There's no threat anymore, and all of the stakes disappear. And perhaps the most egregious example is the final boss fight with the Joker, which is absolutely a joke. And I understand that's a pun, that was intentional, but it's legitimate. It's like a total joke. I, I honestly don't know how they got this game to release with a final boss fight this bad. All it is is a fight that consists of three phases, which rely on the Joker falling on his overly long fingernails after he's injected himself with Titan, and then those fingernails get stuck on a wood plank in front of him just long enough for Batman to beat the crap out of him and lose a third of his health. And then he jumps back up, 
turns his back to you while you fight minor enemies and then you pull him back down and the same thing happens like i'm not kidding this happens three times it's a total joke i i, I can't make this up especially with the visual element that was here with the joker's disgusting hideous look and all of the other bosses that you've come across i was expecting there to be some sort of super climactic and amazing boss fight where all of the enemies come back together you fight a, a sequence with croc and then you go up against scarecrow then you go up against poison ivy then you go up against harley then you go up against each of them climaxing with the joker himself in an epic boss fight but instead they rely on the same laurels they throw a bunch of smaller level enemies at you while the joker does his little thing and then the gimmick comes back into play you do that three times and then the game is over it is by far one of if not the most disappointing boss fights especially final boss fights that i've ever come across it is totally egregious and if I don't stop myself from ranting about it more, I, I'll keep going. It's so stupid. I can't even, I, I can't even deal. I can't even deal. But all of that said, the game is phenomenal. There's a reason it won all sorts of Game of the Year awards. There's a reason that it was called the greatest superhero game ever made, revolutionary and thought-provoking. All of these titles and praises were thrown upon it simply because it was revolutionary and it was willing to do something very very different tell a dark story and introduce a new type of combat system that nobody had really seen before implemented in this way and to be honest it worked and what's really impressive about batman arkham asylum is that all it was effectively was a proof of concept so that the developer could move on and create the game they actually wanted to create in the form of batman arkham city which i think is a great place to end this because after all that video is coming as i've said a bajillion times over the course of this video <laughs>
I promise you won't be disappointed. Like while I was scripting and getting this video ready, I showed my roommate clips of me playing Batman Arkham City that I was going to be using in the video. And he saw the Catwoman sections and had no idea that was a thing because when the game came out, he played it, it launched, and I guess he didn't get the edition that had the Catwoman sections. So he just never experienced it. And if the game were coming out now, I would talk about how exclusivity deals like this are a bad thing and bad for the industry. But you know what? It's so long ago. This game launched in 2011. It's not really worth anybody's time to do that. Rocksteady's moved on. And, and so instead, we're just going to say that the game of the year edition that includes these segments is the definitive edition. And that's what we're going to be critiquing. Now, Batman Arkham City takes place roughly one year after the events of the first game. Quincy Sharp, the dude who ran Arkham Asylum, took full credit for the prevention of the Joker's escape and basically everything that Batman did during the first game. And then he used this new cachet to campaign, eventually becoming mayor of all of Gotham. Now, having seen the shortcomings of the Asylum firsthand, he then ordered the closure of the Asylum and of Blackgate Penitentiary as well. He then has the city government buy all of the slums of the city in one district and then convert them all into a mega prison wherein the prisoners are basically allowed to go and do whatever they want. Now, I don't think you need me to explain to you how that makes no sense for a city government to do, but you know, we'll circle back to it. Now, once this was done, a guy by the name of Hugo Strange was put in place as the head honcho of the new asylum, which was deemed Arkham City. As far as we know, at the beginning of the game, he was basically put in charge of this area and ordered to prevent escapes and maintain a rough balance within the prison without interfering too much and disturbing the general zeitgeist of the community. You know you're a YouTuber who's desperate to sound intelligent when you use the word zeitgeist in a video game review. Now eventually you find out that Strange manipulated Sharp into doing all of this for his own reasons. These reasons being that Rachel Gould teamed up with Strange in order to eliminate the prisoners once and for all, purifying the city of all of these terrible criminals, a plan that they codenamed Protocol 10. Now of course all of this is highly condensed, but we're going to talk a little bit more about the details of it in a second. But first, I want to stress how much the idea of Arkham City doesn't actually make any sense at all. Firstly, this is prime real estate. It's in the heart of Gotham City. You can see the other buildings just on the other side of the wall. Why did they buy this out as a prison instead of just buying it out, renovating it, and then perhaps using some of the proceeds that they garnered after the fact to buy a cheap plot of land far outside of town away from civilization and put the prisoners there? Furthermore, if Quincy Sharp was arguing to the city council, for instance, that the asylum and Blackgate Penitentiary were out of date and were dilapidated to the point where they could no longer fulfill their obligations to society and to the prisoners, why wouldn't he just have all of those detention centers renovated at a cost that would surely be far, far less than buying out a huge section of the city, building giant walls around it, and then hiring armed guards to patrol the border to make sure nobody gets out. I mean, not to mention that this also has to have a hugely negative impact on the tourist value of the city. I mean, are we just going to ignore that? Didn't think so. Tourism. Smart. Now, I understand that the Asylum left much to be desired. In fact, the entire first game basically serves to prove to the player that the Asylum is out of date, is old, dilapidated, breaking down, and is incapable of serving its purpose. 
but we didn't get to see any issues with Blackgate. Sure, we hear rumblings about it in the first game and how it clearly isn't as inescapable as previously believed, but surely it isn't better than just throwing everyone into a giant district of Gotham with a huge wall around the edge. And yes, Sharp was being manipulated when he did this, but how in the hell did he get the city council to go for this? I mean, let's just say that they all got paid off or convinced or both. This would be a literal career suicide for anybody to become involved with, especially because it seems that the new mayor is a a literal dictator. In the opening scene of the game, Bruce Wayne is announcing a new political campaign to close Arkham City down. Watch. In a few moments, Bruce Wayne will be live on stage to explain his sudden interest in Gotham politics. The infamous Playboy millionaire has never been one it's to- billionaire, Vicky. Millionaires are so last year. I assume that you thought yourself untouchable. Well, as you can see, no one is untouchable. Thank you! Thank you, Gotham! Imprisoned behind these walls, gang leaders are fighting a bloody war in the middle of our once great city. Every inmate from Arkham Asylum and Blackgate Prison has been relocated to this facility. How can this be safe for the people of Gotham? Shut Arkham City down. It's out of control. Shut it down. By the end of tonight, I will be a hero just like you, Batman. Today, I'm starting the campaign to close Arkham City and make Gotham safe again. Remember, Wayne is the priority target. Surround him! Hands in the air, Wayne. We have Wayne. Target secured. He's literally kidnapped at gunpoint while reporters stand feet away. Now I get it, it's supposed to be a dark and gritty world wherein corruption is rampant and backhanded political moves are the norm. However, this isn't backhanded. This is a full frontal assault. I mean, why couldn't Strange have just let Wayne finish his speech and then get ushered into a limo that Strange's tiger security forces had taken over or put sleeping gas in, make him pass out and then capture him that way? Why did they have to do it in such a public invisible way? I suppose you can make the argument that Strange was trying to make an example of Bruce Wayne for speaking up against the asylum, therefore kidnapping him in a very, very public way. But it seems as though pragmatically that is far and away the worst possible way of doing this. As with all shady political dealings, the most important element is plausible deniability. Do something horrible and everybody knows that you did something horrible, but leave it just vague enough where people think, well, we can't really prove that he did it, but he definitely did it. Like, I don't know, shooting a former staffer in the back in a botched robbery and then not stealing anything. Or leaving somebody who is set to testify against you dead in their office with two self-inflicted gunshot wounds to the head in what is apparently a suicide. With two bullet holes. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go down to the comments. I'm sure people are going wild. Anyway, another element of this is that if Strange's intention is to prevent Bruce Wayne from interfering with Protocol 10, because after all, he is Batman, and that's why he was apparently kidnapped in the first place, why would he willingly introduce him to the prisoner population? 
He knows he's Batman and will likely get out and do his own thing instantly, in which case, why bother capturing him in the first place? Which takes us all the way back to the theory that perhaps this was just a show of force and a demonstration to the public that you don't mess or criticize with Arkham City. Or maybe it's just to put Wayne in his place and remind him that Strange knows who he is. But if the ultimate purpose was to capture Wayne so that Batman couldn't interfere with Protocol 10, which as far as we know is what the motivation was, why not just put a bullet in his head to end it for good? Or if we're being moral, because you know, it's not like we're about to kill thousands of people. Why not just lock him up in a room chained to a concrete slab naked with an explosive set to go off if he moves off the slab with like a laser thing pointed down because lasers are cool. You know what, let's also throw in some armed guards that are paid huge sums to keep rifles aimed at him for the whole night, just until Protocol 10 has fully completed. Seriously, it's not that hard. I should be a supervillain. But as with a lot of these types of things, when it comes to superheroes and comic book stories and video games in general, the best excuse and explanation of these things is just to say, it's just a game. It doesn't have to make sense. We're setting the stage for a fun gameplay experience that ties into a narrative that motivates that gameplay experience. And it doesn't need to make perfect sense or to be the next Citizen Kane. It's okay to have some holes here and there. If anything, it adds flavor and humanity. And before you comment, yes, I know that sentence barely made any sense at all. Water. Anyways, a ton of big names are in the game. The Joker, the Riddler, the Mad Hatter, Two-Face, Catwoman, Clayface, Penguin, Deadshot, Mr. Freeze, I could go on. The focal point of this game, however, is the Joker, who is still sick from his exposure to Titan in the previous game, which, if you look at this clip from the end of the first game, should leave you with no surprised feelings whatsoever when you realize that he's still reeling from this a year later. Basically, all we find out is that the Joker's blood is contaminated with Titan still and has become infected to the point where it's killing him. We don't get exact details on how this happens, why this is happening, or how close he is to death, at least at the beginning of the game. But from what we can see, it's pretty clear that he's close. Now, early on in the game, Batman pursues Joker, finds him, gets knocked out, and then wakes up, finding that the Joker has transfused his blood into Batman, leaving him with the same disease or whatever the Joker has. Now, I could be a jerk and explain how this doesn't make any sense at all, that in the span of a few hours, Batman is almost dead from this, or that it's more likely that it's just a bad blood transfusion rather than Joker's actual sickness, because bad blood transfusions can lead to severe, severe repercussions in the span of just a few hours. But whatever. It's a game, right? Now, I actually really enjoyed this specific narrative trope because what they do is that they put both the protagonist and the antagonist on the same path aimed for the same goal, but they have different tactics enabled. It's like starting both players at A and then they both need to get to B, but the path that they take can be completely different. And some people might be willing to take moral routes while others are taking immoral routes. And it's that journey, and the more and more desperate the characters become, that's what tells you whether or not these characters are actually worth their salt. If they're willing to maintain their moral beliefs, even in extremely stressful and trying situations. And to be honest, this is the perfect setup for a Batman story. Batman not wanting to kill anybody ever, being forced into the same exact situation that the freaking Joker is in and seeing how those two characters handle this situation differently and how they approach the solution to it. 
And with this setup, we also see a side of Joker that we rarely get to experience. Usually, whether it's in film or video game portrayals of the Joker, we see him as a very jubilant, animated, and flamboyant character who's usually so careless with what he does that it turns everything into a joke. But as you would expect, when a character doesn't take anything seriously and you force them into a situation wherein they have to take it seriously, you see whether or not they are actually that way, what they're really made of and what they really care about. Seeing the Joker close to death to the point where he's coughing, hacking, and can feel it coming on to him to the point where he feels so desperate he needs to infect somebody else in order to make sure that they help him find the same cure that they need need, it's a totally different experience than the Joker of the first game or than the Joker that you saw in The Dark Knight or back in the Tim Burton movies. It's incredibly unique. Now, this type of setup has, of course, been handled in the comic books, but for people who have not experienced those stories, it's a very unique and interesting way of setting the stage for the story to come. Now, after all of this, Batman decides that the only person who can synthesize this cure is Mr. Freeze. You go, you find him, and after discussing it with him, you figure out that the only way to complete this cure and make it more stable to the point where it's safe to consume is if you get a sample of Rachel Ghoul's blood, which has restorative properties somehow. And so we go to get a sample of Rachel Ghoul's blood, which takes several in-game hours and has us experiencing Talia and Rachel Ghoul, all of his minions, and including even a drug-fueled nightmare, which offers some very, very unique twists on the original gameplay design, and also the overall visual design of the encounter is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, just look at this. And so you get the blood and you take it to Mr. Freeze. He creates the cure. You two fight at some point, And then you find out that the cure was stolen by Harley Quinn before Batman could get it. And so Batman, really feeling the effects of the infection at this point, runs off to fight the Joker and to get the cure so that he can prevent himself from dying. And so while you're fighting the Joker in a very unique arena, which is one of my favorites, but we're going to talk a little bit about that later on in the video, Hugo Strange begins Protocol 10, and eventually Batman gets buried in rubble after a missile strikes the building that you're fighting in. Now, all during the last few hours of gameplay, you've been swapping occasionally to Catwoman to play through some select sequences if you have the Catwoman DLC enabled. Most of it's not too crazy important. You interact with Two-Face, then you interact with Poison Ivy. It's fun little cameos, but nothing too crazy. But at this point, after Batman's been buried in the rubble, you play as Catwoman running off to a vault where you can get some precious some things they never really tell you. You collect them, and then the player is faced with a choice. The only choice of this kind that you experience really in the whole game, where Catwoman is faced with a choice between leaving Arkham City and starting a new life that she always wanted with whatever this new fortune will bring her, or going and helping Batman, leaving behind her own selfish interests, at least for a little while. Now, because curiosity never kills cats, I decided to be curious and try going out the door where it would serve my own selfish intentions, leaving Batman on his own just to see what would happen. And basically what happens is that she walks up the stairs and then this little ditty plays. Screw him.
And so it literally rewinds and places Catwoman back right at the same point, and you can make the same decision over again. And you can do that as many times as you want. It'll just keep rewinding you and putting you back there. But I thought a fun little detail of this was something I found in an interview that one of the developers gave, wherein he explains that this option was just thrown out at a developer meeting while they were working on the game and this particular section. And originally you weren't gonna have the choice. She was gonna set the bags down and then the cutscene would continue playing while she runs off to save Batman. But they said, why don't we just give players the choice and have an option where she walks out the door and then an option where she doesn't. And they put it together in two days. Like, I'm not kidding, two days they put that little piece together and then it turned into one of the only moral choices that you have in the game. Now, of course, it's not an RPG. Of course, there's no repercussions for making the right decision versus uh, the bad decision and, and vice versa. It's just kind of a fun little extra thing they put in there that they didn't have to. But I thought it was cool that they did that in two days. So, whatever. And so she runs off to save Batman. And wait, that's all it took? Just lifting that thing? He couldn't have done that? Okay, uh, whatever. Well, m well, maybe she fought off some guys we didn't see that could have killed Batman. Well, then why didn't they show us that? You know what, what? Never mind. Anyway, Batman runs off and takes out Strange in his tower in a stealth sequence that I unfortunately consider to be a low point in the main story. But don't worry, we'll get to this and I'll explain why a little bit later when we tackle the gameplay more specifically. We then get in to see Strange, we talk with him, and then Rachel Gould comes out of nowhere, stabs Strange, and then explains that he was the brains behind the operation from the very beginning. Strange then sets the tower to self-destruct for reasons. And as you fall, Batman grabs Ra's al Ghul and apparently is bracing to save him so that he can be captured, but Ra's takes his sword, stabs himself through the stomach, and it wasn't very yippee kaye. He just kind of fell on a fence and died. It was kind of weird. I actually remember playing this section when the game first came out back in 2011. I was little 14-year-old Luke sitting there with the controller in my hand, and when Rachel Ghoul stabs himself through his stomach, I wasn't clear if he was trying to get through himself to yippee Kaye Batman behind him because Batman was further up, and maybe he thought that stabbing himself would also stab Batman. It's kind of weird, uh, but he does it so gently and and just straight through. It's it's I I think it is purely suicidal but i didn't understand why he needed to commit suicide in that moment if he was so distraught that protocol 10 failed then why wouldn't he just try to survive let batman save him and then go about his business and eventually try again if he does have the supernatural ability maybe he was terrified that being captured would leave him without his fountain of youth per se so he would slowly die and turn old and feel sick and terrible there's a lot of reasons and things going into it. I don't think it's that necessary. I think it's more that they had to tie up that knot and kind of pass him off out of the story. Point being, he falls and splats on the fence. At this point, we get a formal invite from the Joker to go to a theater. And, you know, I'll, I'll just play this clip and it's important. You'll see why I'm doing this in just a second. Hello, Batman. I know you can hear me. I've not caught you at a bad time, have I? I was worried that you may have forgotten about little old me. Take a look at your girlfriend, who, as you can see, is in danger of having a pretty little brain splattered all over this camera. <laughs> Ignore him, beloved. Let him die. Oh, how romantic. Only problem is, I've never felt better. And we both know you really can't ignore me. 
can you? So listen, Batman. I'm putting on a little show for you. It's going to be a doozy, a real red carpet affair. You'd better hurry, though. If you take too long, a leading lady may be found dead in her dressing room. <laughs> The prompt reads, quote, get the cure from Joker and stop him from becoming immoral. Immortal. (laughs) Stop him from being immortal. Immoral, guys. Don't be immoral. Stop him from becoming immortal. That's what I meant to say. Now, my problem with this is that in the video clip that we just played, the Joker never says outright that he's going to become immortal. He just says that he's going to put on a show for Batman and Talia. But somehow Batman receives from that small conversation that somehow the Joker is either going to achieve immortality through the cure, because I guess it has Rachel Ghoul's blood in it, or he's going to access the fountain of youth or fountain of, of healing powers and regeneration that Rachel Ghoul was using, which eventually does happen in the ending sequence of the game. But we have no indication that that's where this theater is and that underneath that theater is this fountain. It's never clearly specified. So it, to me, it just seems like a little detail where they they just said, yeah, stop him from becoming immortal to raise the stakes. But he never said that he was good. You get what I mean. And so we go, we get in after taking out some snipers. We step into the theater. The Joker demands the cure. Batman's a bit confused because as we said earlier, he still thinks that Harley has the cure after she stole it from Mr. Freeze's workshop. But then Talia stabs the Joker in the back, seemingly killing him. Now, I want to stress, literally no one who played the game when it first came out believed that this was actually the death of the Joker. They saw some sort of plot twist coming because you don't kill off one of the most significant comic book characters in all of gaming in this way. But I think it's also important to stress that gamers going into this game knew that the Joker was likely going to be killed off in some way, shape, or form, likely near the end of the title. Because Mark Hamill, the guy that voiced the Joker, had said that this was going to be his last time playing the Joker. And it just seemed wrong after Mark Hamill played the role for, at this point, I believe it was decades. It just seemed wrong to continue the Joker in this series without him and to hire Troy Baker to come in and do it in his place. It just seemed wrong. So people assumed that this was likely going to uh, cause some end to the Joker storyline, but nobody knew how exactly that was going to happen. But I guess the point is anecdotally, no one that I know actually believed this fake out. They knew that the Joker was likely going to die, but people just couldn't believe that the Joker would do it in this way, especially because this little moment doesn't last for very long at all. Watch. Harley Quinn stole it for him, I took it back. It's over. Surprise! (laughs) Mr. J, you look perfect. Ring, ring. So how do you keep a secret from the world's greatest detective? Well, do you know? You stick it right in front of him, right under his long, pointy nose. And wait! Joker wants you to think he's sick. Then wait! Gotcha! You fell for the old fake Joker gang, Batman! Told you! Oh. I'm sorry, beloved. I didn't know. Ooh, encore! 
more! Bravo! <laughs> it wasn't never you. Not always. Well, sometimes. <laughs> uh, confusing, isn't it? I know I'd want to know just what the hell is going on if I were you. <laughs> Let's just say, at times like these, it's important to keep up <coughs> appearances. But first, if you would be so kind, hand over my jaw. And gentlemen, for one night only, standing in for yours truly, and doing a damn fine job of it, I give you a You weren't even supposed to be in here, Carl. Why sign up with Joker? <clears throat> the role of a lifetime! Now, I'll let this plot twist speak for itself because I think its success is highly contingent on the player that's experiencing it. So I want to hear your thoughts on this plot twist down in the comment section below. What did you think of it when you first experienced it? Did you see it coming? Did you know that this was going to happen after some of the seeds that they planted earlier in the story? For me personally, I thought that they handled this very, very delicately. I thought that all of the little hints they dropped throughout the story that are recapped in that flashback you just saw were handled very, very well and weren't clear in, in pointing this out. But at the same time, when this plot twist reveals itself and you see Talia get shot, fall, and you see the other Joker come out, and then you see Clayface's hand morph, it all of a sudden clicks and everything in the game that was previously like, what all of a sudden clicks and makes sense and everything is justified I, I absolutely love it but once again there is a bit of nostalgic bias for me to be straight up like i was 14 when i first played this game so for me to say that 14 year old luke was surprised by this plot twist doesn't mean a lot if you were like 25 and had a phd when you played this it might have been seen from a mile away for you but that's why i'm interested in your comments so make sure to leave them i will be reading them now, one last thing about this plot twist that I want to stress, and it's something that I just found while I was researching for this video. I had no idea this was a thing before this. The background for Clayface. In the clip that you just saw, he says, The role of a lifetime! The role of a lifetime. So I decided to look into the background of Clayface. And as the Batman fanatics among you know, Clayface in this current rendition and form started in Detective Comics number 40 back in 1940 as a character named Basil Carlo, who was a B-list actor who then goes crazy and insane when he finds out that a horror movie that he previously starred in was going to be remade without him. Of course, a bunch of stuff happens, and then he goes insane, gets dressed up, pretends to be other people, and eventually he goes and is able to synthesize with another character to get the sort of transformative powers that you see in this current form of Clayface. But at his core, Clayface is a failed actor. He's like a B-list actor who takes himself too seriously, and I thought that that was such a clever and unique and interesting way of tackling this fake out and plot twist because it plays into the Joker's insecurities of being sick and seemingly powerless. And then it also plays into the insecurities of Clayface where he just wants a big role, the role of a lifetime. And he's offered it by the Joker to play this insane maniac. It's just so cool to me.
But with all of that said, you fight Clayface in one of my favorite boss fights of the whole game, visually and in terms of gameplay. And then during this fight, the Joker blows up the floor, sending everyone down to Ra's al Ghul's previously mentioned lair, at which point after you defeat Clayface, Joker tries to hop into the pool. Batman throws Talia's sword and drops a large electrical thing into the pool, causing everything to explode. And then this happens. Quick! Cure! What are you waiting for? Come on! I killed your girlfriend. Poison Gotham in hell! <laughs> it's not even breakfast! <laughs> but so what? We all know you'll save me. Every decision you've ever made ends with death and misery. People die. I stop you. You'll just break out and do it again. <laughs> Think of it as a running no! Are you happy now? Do you want to know something funny? Even after everything you've done, I would have saved you. <laughs> that actually is pretty funny. happened in there. When this Joker death happened, I lost it. Whenever a character that is super important and has a lot of fan support behind them is killed off, you have to handle it in a very unique and sort of reverent way. Even if the character is terrible and is the Joker serial killing maniac, you still have to approach it in a respectful way. Otherwise, people get upset. That's why that first fake out didn't work for so many people because people knew that you weren't going to kill off the Joker in that way. You would approach it with a little bit more Effort, maybe, is the word. 
And the way that Rocksteady chose to do it in this sequence, I, I thought was masterfully done and works so well, specifically in contrasting the Joker with Batman, which is the whole point of Batman Arkham Asylum and Batman Arkham City specifically. The Joker is straight up pathetic in his last moments. He literally crawls on all fours and licks up the cure after the vial breaks, like a dog trying to hang on to life. He may be insane, but he's scared. He is so desperate to maintain control of everything that he hired an actor to play him in public so that his goons wouldn't question his competence or ability. And Batman was in the same position. He almost collapses several times in the last couple hours of the game, but he perseveres. More importantly, he never lets his desperation take him to immoral areas. He stays above it all, which is why he's an icon and a role model for millions. But after all of this, the story is over, and Batman can just go off and keep cleaning out Arkham City as much as he wants. The player's left to their own devices, and you're left feeling sort of empty, but still with an obligation to continue, because you know that there's still crime to fight, you just feel as though your partner in crime is missing now. And it's a strange feeling, but it's a feeling that you believe and, and can't understand Batman also feeling. He's been going up against this guy for years and years and years, and to finally have it put to rest must be a very strange experience. Now, as for a summation of my feelings on the narrative as a whole, I feel that it does motivate the gameplay, and there are some sequences which are downright brilliant, such as Clayface playing the role of the Joker, a plot twist that very few saw coming and that ties together very well with their characters and with the Joker's desperation in that moment. But at the same time, there are other areas that are fairly sloppy and that feel like filler, strictly speaking, strange and his story. Which, let's be honest, it doesn't even really qualify as a story. He's just a bad guy who was told by another bad guy what to do and how to do it. He's just a sad pawn. And at the end of the game, you're left feeling as though he was just a pathetic fool and not a mastermind. Which, in a way, diminishes the value of your own accomplishments and achievements within the game itself. Which is perhaps what's supposed to happen so that you feel this emptiness in you after you've uh, stopped the demolition of an entire section of the city and the murder of thousands, but nonetheless it still leaves a hole in the player. But all of these little criticisms I, I was only able to come across after playing this game through again twice for this video and really going through it with a fine tooth comb trying to find things to be frustrated about. I still love this game and I still consider it a masterpiece, but as with all masterpieces they're not immune to criticism and by criticizing it and breaking it apart, it helps you understand it more, which after all is kind of the point of these videos, to tear apart something that we enjoy or that we like, figure out how it works and why it works, and more specifically how it could be improved. And as we go through the series, specifically in the next video going to Batman Arkham Origins, we can see how the developers learned from Batman Arkham City and brought those lessons into the next game. If they learned from it, and if they did, how they learned from it and applied that knowledge to the new experience. So yeah, once again, if you want to know when that Origins critique is coming out, make sure to subscribe. But as with all narratives in video games, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. There are also gameplay mechanics that play into it, and a good game is able to implement all of these together so that the gameplay and the narrative works together 
through one common purpose. And so let's, I don't know what this is. And so let's tackle the gameplay. As I said earlier, the game feels like a straight continuation of Batman Arkham Asylum. It works very well as a sequel, so much so that the game's concept was originally developed before the release of Asylum sometime in early 2009, late 2008. There are actually blueprints and concept art for Batman Arkham City that you can find in a secret room in Batman Arkham Asylum. Basically, you go to Quincy Sharp's office, you go to this wall, and you have to place three of these bat-shaped explosive gunks on the wall in a very specific pattern and orientation. I had to do this several times to get it to work. But then when you detonate them, a hole blows in the wall, and you just walk on in. And in case you're wondering, yeah, Detective Vision doesn't show anything on the other side. Somehow it's like lead-lined, and Batman's vision stuff can't see through. It's very well hidden. But anyway, you get through this wall, you walk in there, and you see up on the wall a blueprint for what seems to be an expansion of the asylum with a long bridge leading to it. And then you also see the penitentiary labeled, the prison labeled, and then you also see just a huge wall outlining where Arkham City would eventually be. What's really cool about this little Easter egg is just how different these maps and the concept art differs from the finished product. You can see where they were initially going, and you can also see after playing Batman Arkham City where they ended up, and you can look in interviews to figure out why they made those decisions and steered in different directions. From the blueprints and the concept art in this room, we can see that this was likely still going to be called Arkham Asylum, but rather just an expansion of the original island. You can see concept art just above the blueprint, labeling it as such. Now what's cool about this is the fact that Batman Arkham City has a total gameplay area of roughly five times the space that was in Batman Arkham Asylum. And so by adding on to the Asylum map, five times the space, it could have created some really interesting interplay between the two areas where there's clear zones in between. But if you look at some of the developer logs from the interviews that the developers gave during the development process and just after, they discussed this process and how they decided eventually to just cut off the asylum and leave it with just the city because they felt as though they had already tackled the island and there was no way to really incorporate it into the new vision of gameplay wherein there's much more vertical exploration where you're flying around having a huge bridge in between the two couldn't really be achieved unless you were to scatter it and, and control it in a very unique way it just wasn't going to work the way that they wanted and clearly the most obvious and frequently asked question leading up to the release of batman arkham city was whether or not we were going to get to play in the batmobile which is something that was originally shown off in the opening cinematic of asylum and it seems as though if there was ever a time to use the batmobile it was going to be in batman arkham city because it's a city and there would seemingly be a lot of space. But don't worry, we're going to talk about that. And I actually have a quote from a developer. Just a second. But from the developer interviews that I've read, the most clearly stated reason for why they cut Asylum out of the original concept for Batman Arkham City was strictly because they had already gone there and that navigation, once they had started to see the prototype of the gliding and grapple hook mechanic in play, they realized that to go back to Asylum couldn't be done without it feeling as though it was weighing down the overall experience because if they wanted to implement that island original concept into the new Arkham City they would have to completely redesign it with a much more vertical design and at that point it's not Arkham Asylum anymore at least as we had just seen it two years before in their first game. But beyond this we also have new tools at our disposal such as freeze grenades, the rec gun which stands for remote electrical charge and the disruptor which disables guns and explosives 
And all of these things help you to create a very dynamic gameplay experience while feeling uniquely Batman. And one of the best things about these tools is that they can implement so well into combat. Some players will use them extensively, others will barely touch them at all except for when absolutely necessary. The game occasionally tries to remind the player that they should be using these tools in combat, the most clear example being the fight with Mr. Freeze where you have to use your ret gun to pull him towards you and you have to use all of these different tactics in order to take him down because he learns every time that you use one of these methods on him. But the game is not afraid to just let the player do what they feel is best and play the way that they want to. I, for one, don't tend to use a lot of these tools when I am going through the combat sequences. I tend to focus purely on building up the combo counter, raising XP points, and then building up my armor and overall damage resistance. Now from the interviews, we can learn that they had a lot of other tools that were initially implemented into the game that were eventually cut out because they didn't feel honest to the character of Batman. And this brings us to the idea of the Batmobile, which wasn't used because, quote, it ain't a driving game. This and the following quote comes from Dax Jin, who was the marketing game manager over at Rocksteady Games leading up to the release of Batman Arkham City. He went on to say, quote, You've seen the work we've put into the gliding system, and that works just fine for moving the character around the city. Also, lots of the streets in Arkham City are filled with rubble and craters, so the Batmobile wouldn't be the best mode of transport. It wouldn't make for very fun driving, even if we put the Batmobile in the game. In all seriousness, though, the moment you put Batman in a car, it becomes an entirely different kind of game. So there are no vehicles in the game whatsoever, end quote. Now, of course, I haven't talked about Batman Arkham Knight yet, which is a video that's going to be coming down the road. Again, subscribe if you want to eventually see that one. But obviously, Batman Arkham Knight was known for its implementation of the Batmobile, which, as their marketing manager in this interview says, creates an entirely different game. Because Batman, all of a sudden, has an entirely different mode of transport and different mode of, of fighting his enemies. And it, it's just different. It just changes everything. And I think it was the right choice, to be perfectly honest, to steer clear of the Batmobile and focus purely on Batman and traversing the way you would expect and think Batman traverses in his day-to-day -day life. I, I guess it's night-to-night -night life, but whatever. Now this brings us to stealth, and in my opinion, the most important discussion when it comes to Batman Arkham City's gameplay. Of course, I'm talking about Detective Vision. In Batman Arkham Asylum, one of my biggest criticisms of the gameplay system was that Detective Vision was far too useful. Specifically, as you went through the game, there was really no need or obligation or utility to turning it off. You could go through effectively the entire game with Detective Vision switched on, and it would not only make the gameplay easier, but in some sequences, it was necessary. And this is a concept that's echoed by several of the developers who said many times in interviews leading up to the game that they had to do a lot of work with Detective Vision to still make it useful and not feel as though they were nerfing it from the first game. Because after all, Batman still is using it. He's still developing it. And as you would expect, he's likely still using it in day-to-day -day life. But you still need to fix the problem that you had in the first game where it was so useful that players didn't have a reason to turn it off. And so what they did to fix it was actually fairly sneaky and I think was very, very intelligent. They made detective vision so that it blurs at long distances so you can't use it while you're traveling through the city and expect it to work the same way. And while you're traversing specifically, there's no compass on the map. There's no UI to tell you where your waypoint is. 
they turn all of that off. So really all it's useful for is spotting enemies from a distance while you're traversing. And when you're not doing that, you just turn it off and enjoy the visuals for what they are, which even in 2019 is pretty stunning, I will admit. Now for me, I still feel as though it is overused and it's still too useful. I found myself using it far more than I would have liked to, not because I just stumbled into it or because I'm incapable of turning it off, but rather because in many gameplay sequences, it's straight up necessary, especially on harder difficulties in sequences that are specifically designed for stealth. Which I suppose brings us perfectly to the Strange Tower sequence. As I said earlier in the video, this is one of the low points in the game for me, specifically because it has such low stakes. From the top of the game, we know that Strange is a major player in Arkham City. If anything, he's the major player in Arkham City. And we know that he's set up to be the primary protagonist. But we know going into this final sequence as we climb up Strange Tower, we know that this isn't going to be the end of the game because we haven't taken down Joker yet, and that is a major plot sequence that still has to be resolved. As a result, you go into this chapter of the game knowing full well that it's not actually the end, even though everything is trying to point that it will be the end, that this is supposed to be some big climactic finish to the game. And visually, it is that. You go up to the top of the tower, you swing around, and the vistas and views are incredible. It's visually probably my favorite moment in the whole game. But in terms of gameplay, it is so boring, it's hard to quantify. The game doesn't do anything different. It just throws a bunch of people with guns up in the tower. You swing around the outside, then crawl around the inside, slowly picking them off one by one. And if you are looking to spam it, you basically just go to one of the balconies, you hang off the edge, and then you wait for one of the guards to walk up to the edge. You pull them off and you just repeat that process until everybody's gone. Now, I'm not recommending that you spam the game in that way, but when you are capable of spamming a game and manipulating the mechanic to the point where it can be abused so easily, I don't think that it's saying you should do that. More than anything, it's a criticism of the game for allowing that manipulation to occur. A game like Neo is very aware that players are going to try to just sprint through entire areas to get to the next boss to avoid all of the minutiae of chopping down enemies to rack up souls or whatever the currency is in Neo. And so in a response to this, they made it so that the enemies follow you, quite simply, for a long ways. And if you end up getting to a mini boss or a boss, God forbid, they stack on top of that. And then you have to take them all out at the same time. And you very quickly regret it because the game is structured in a way where they prevent that abuse. And this is one thing that I think a lot of people love about the Arkham games and hate about it at the same time is that there are seemingly a lot of these holes in the gameplay that can just be abused, rinsed, and repeated ad nauseum. And that's where I'm interested in hearing your opinion. Do you think that it's laziness on the side of the developers for not preventing that sort of mechanic? Surely the developers over at Rocksteady are capable of thinking of ways around this. They did it with the Mr. Freeze fight where they actually made it so every time you used some sort of combat ability, he learned from it and prevented it from happening again. So they're capable of doing it, which makes me think that it's a conscious decision to leave the ability to abuse that system in the game. I don't know. Leave me your thoughts down in the comment section below. I'm interested in hearing them.
So in summation, I feel that this whole sequence is supposed to, and it's built up visually and thematically and narratively to be this huge climactic moment where everything comes together and you're left feeling super accomplished that you took down the big bad guy who's trying to kill thousands of people. But instead, it leaves you feeling as though you're playing just another small chapter in the game. The gameplay does nothing differently. It's like in a movie when there's a character that's put in a tough situation very early on in the film and you watch it and you know that they're in a dangerous situation, but you also know your, your stupid brain is like, well, they're the protagonist to the film. They're not going to kill them off in the first 30 minutes of this two and a half hour movie. So clearly he's going to get out of this or she's going to get out of this just fine. And it automatically reduces the stakes. And there's no real way to avoid that, except in video games, you have a lot more tools at your disposal. And I suppose if I'm trying to criticize the game, I, I would be a fool not to bring it up. So there you go. But beyond these awkward stilted sequences, the AI is greatly improved and is much faster and more capable of recognizing unique stimuli and intelligently responding to it, which always creates a more interesting, dynamic, and fun experience when playing any sort of stealth game. Moreover, the aforementioned tools that have been added to Batman's repertoire are a great addition and create all sorts of unique possibilities that I'm still, to be perfectly honest, uncovering every time I go through this game. And this leads me into the idea of generalized combat, which is regular hand-to-hand -hand fighting. And as always, it's amazing. Now, I don't need to discuss the free flow combat system much at all. You are likely familiar with it, and if you're not, what are you doing watching this video? Basically, it's highly simplified. There is a strike button, there is a parry button, and then there's many other options for dodging, blocking, rolling, for using different tools, all layering into this base system, which is very, very simple. These systems can be used very poorly, as we saw in the early renditions of it back with Assassin's Creed, but it can also be done very, very well, as it is here. Specifically, what separates that bad from amazing experience is the animation. I don't know what sort of magic they're using over at Rocksteady, but the fluid free flow animation system that they use, allowing for all sorts of combos and parries to be tied together seamlessly, where it actually feels as though a person is moving and doing that, it's absolutely phenomenal. What's even more impressive is that they doubled the number of combat animations from Batman Arkham Asylum to Batman Arkham City. And then also with characters such as Robin in the Harley Quinn's Revenge DLC and Catwoman in her own respective DLC and expansion all have their own unique, completely original combat moves and systems to be used at your leisure. And I really do feel that the cinematic animations in these games, even going on a decade later, have really aged quite well. If you look at the ending sequence that we looked at earlier with the Joker when he passes away, there's a, so many subtleties that have been put in here. Look at, for instance, this. His lip twitches in such a delicate but precise way as the last spurts of life are leaving his body. It's such an eerie, creepy, but brilliant detail. I can't even express how much I love it and how impressive it is that this was done back on like the 360 and the PS3 in 2011. But moving on, the idea of bosses. This was probably my largest criticism in terms of combat of the original Arkham Asylum game was specifically that the bosses felt very shallow, just bad. The last fight with Joker is a joke and is frankly terrible. Go watch my critique of, of 
Asylum if you didn't see it. I, I just, yeah, I just, I was not impressed. But in this game, they took everything to a whole new level. That was criticism that was immediately apparent when Asylum launched, but the rest of the game was so phenomenally well-built that people were willing to forgive them for it. But going into City, you can tell they made a conscious decision to fix that very unique problem. Everything from the Clayface fight to the Rachel Ghoul fight to the Solomon Grundy fight to the Mr. Freeze fight, all are very unique, but don't feel as though they rely purely on a singular gimmick in order to make them work. They're visually interesting and unique and separated from each other very clearly, and they're also, in terms of gameplay and mechanics, very differentiated in terms of the tactics needed to successfully complete them. And honestly, I don't know what else to say. They're just phenomenally well done, and I have to give Rocksteady praise because they knocked this out of the park, specifically in contrast with the original game. They came so far from where they started. It is amazing. Now, as for side content, there's a lot to be discussed, specifically with side quests and the Riddler challenges. This game has roughly 20 hours of side content after you finish the main story. For some people who are looking for a completionist run, it could be as much as 30 to 40 hours. As for the Riddler challenges, there are 440 unique challenges and puzzles that range from throwing a single batarang and stepping on a button to completing a complex combination of moves in order to reach a predetermined area before a predetermined amount of time runs out. Now, according to various interviews, we know that these were created and placed into the game towards the end of development, and it shows. The map still feels like a city instead of a confusing mess of corridors designed to hide items. And I like to think of it as an extension of how the Riddler would have developed these puzzles himself, carefully and using what was available to him without manipulating most of the city, just using what was there. And it's also important to stress that these Riddler challenges, some very, very simple and some fairly complex, were all designed to encourage creativity and not scouring. It was very important to the development team that they didn't have players trying to find every nook and cranny hoping to find a Riddler trophy as they did in the first game, rather that they were completing puzzles and using the tools that were available to them in order to solve puzzles that challenged them and offered some unique gameplay. And as for side quests, there are many things that you can do simply while exploring the world, either during the main quest or just after it. For instance, Deadshot has an entire side quest that you can go on by investigating crime scenes where he's taken out political asylum seekers, trying to figure out where he shot from, where he keeps his weapons, and who his next target is going to be, eventually figuring out exactly where he is going to be and when, at which point you take him out, and it's all side content. It's not pulled into the main story, it's completely optional. And beyond just these Riddler challenges and the side quests within the core game of Batman Arkham City, from the main menu you can engage in challenge modes, which are also under the purview of the Riddler's challenges, which allow you to tackle very unique instances and circumstances that challenge your skills in the combat and stealth mechanics of the game. It's also really fun because you can do these as various characters and in different skins, which offers a little bit of flavor. But perhaps the most important, at least for me, element of Batman Arkham City and what makes it so special is its charm and personality. One of my favorite side quests in the entire game is where you go and you find the Mad Hatter. 
as I was originally exploring the game world and the map on all sorts of rooftops and on streets, I was finding picnic blankets, baskets, teacups, and they were left everywhere very strangely, but they were always looking towards a specific area. And eventually, if you pursue the side quest, you can find yourself captured by the Mad Hatter, drinking tea with him and his buddies, and engaging in a very unique combat sequence, which visually is probably my favorite Riddler challenge arena. But more than anything, what I love about this is that it's completely optional and it offers such a unique perspective on the world of Batman and the world in which you are exploring. It's such a crazy event to just experience that it leaves the player feeling just as baffled as Batman. This is also reflected in the unique dialogue that you find as you travel through the city, and also in the fact that each of the villains are given their own time to shine, and some are developed well beyond what was strictly necessary. For instance, look at Freeze and Nora. Nora, in case you're not aware, is Mr. Freeze's wife, who's also been frozen and has been captured by some goons. Early on in your experience with Mr. Freeze, he asks Batman if he'd be able to go rescue her for him, and at one point you fight Mr. Freeze over this dispute. After the events of the main game, you can either leave Mr. Freeze to himself and not help him find Nora, or you can go actually hunt her down find her location, take out the thugs that were guarding her and keeping her prisoner effectively, and then go back and tell Mr. Freeze where his wife is, at which point he, it is safe to assume, goes off and rescues her. He thanks you profusely, and it creates a very unique, special, and, and almost magical moment where Batman is helping somebody who was earlier considered his foe, but he's doing it out of the goodness of his heart, once again, because he rises above it all. And that's why he is such an icon and a hero to so many people. And this care is also shown even to Harley Quinn in the expansion that also comes with the Game of the Year edition, Harley Quinn's Revenge. It's very, very short. You play as Robin, you go through and you take her down and you play as Batman and Robin. It's, it's fun. It's very, very short, but it really makes you feel for Harley Quinn after she's lost the love of her life. However crazy she is and however weird that relationship was, he was the love of her life and she lost it. Altogether, the game is phenomenal. It's a masterpiece, and if you haven't played it, you shouldn't have watched this video. You should have gone and played it. In order to understand Batman Arkham Origins, you need to understand how, and more importantly, why it was created. You see, usually when a game is developed, it starts from an idea, effectively a spark from one creative individual or a team of them who all congeal their ideas into one broader concept. From that point, they push and pull with the idea until they eventually have something that they can work with, and at that point, they begin to conceptualize how the game will actually work. This is true of games that are the first in their franchises, and also true of sequels that come after story, world, and atmosphere have been established. When this isn't the case, you end up with a game that is incredibly bland and is what we would usually call uninspired. It lacks soul and passion, and there's a notable feeling of mediocrity that sprinkles the entire landscape of the map. And unfortunately, this seems to be the case with Batman Arkham Origins, as I will discuss and explain over the course of the next few minutes. You see, in February of 2013, it was reported that a new game in the Batman Arkham franchise would be released by a developer other 
then Rocksteady, the development studio that had headed up the development on Batman Arkham Asylum and Batman Arkham City. When we all found out about this, I think a lot of us were confused. I mean, why would Warner Brothers take away the rights to the franchise and give it to somebody else? However, as we learned, this isn't actually what happened. Warner Brothers allowed Rocksteady to continue developing the project that they were currently slaving away on, and then they added in another studio to make sure that they didn't go three, four, or even five years without a Batman Arkham title. And so Warner Brothers looked around, trying to find a studio that was capable of picking up the series from Rocksteady while they worked on a truly next generation experience. And I think I and a lot of other people expected them to hand this series over to a highly qualified group of individuals, somebody who had worked on an incredibly successful franchise and had made a name for themselves, somebody who could take the reins from one of the most prolific development studios in the last five to 10 years. However, Warner Brothers didn't wanna look outside their own wheelhouse, and so they started looking at development studios within their own purview to develop the next Arkham game. Eventually, they came across Warner Brothers Montreal, who had worked on the Wii U adaptation and port of Batman Arkham City, which allowed them to get familiar with the engine that was being used by Rocksteady, which would also have to be used for the next Arkham game, seeing as how most of the source code was developed specifically for that engine. And so, with all of this in mind, Warner Brothers handed over the reins of the franchise to Warner Brothers Montreal in order to let them develop a spin-off title in the same family as the Arkham games, but set up as a prequel to even Arkham Asylum. Effectively, the development philosophy for this game was going to be that what was established in Batman Arkham City worked very well for the franchise. That game was critically acclaimed and was, by many accounts, one of the most successful and impressive games to release in that year. As a result, the general attitude was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so, Warner Brothers Montreal didn't actually change much of anything in this game at all from Batman Arkham City. In fact, even things such as ice grenades have even just been reskinned into glue grenades using a lot of the same animations and textures just with different specular maps to make them look like glue instead of ice. It's kind of hilarious. Now I want to stress this doesn't mean that the game isn't going to be good because Batman Arkham City was clearly one of my favorite games of all time and is one of the best games in the entire franchise if not the best game in the franchise. But it's important to stress and to accept that this game was not born out of some brilliant idea but was rather started purely as a cash grab to prevent too much time from being in between Arkham releases. Now it's also important to note that Warner Brothers Montreal was not out stranded by themselves on the development of this project. They did have Rocksteady and representatives from Rocksteady coming in periodically to help them with engine work or game mechanics, different technical issues that they would run into with the engine or source code. However, the only thing that Warner Brothers Montreal handled themselves in-house with some contractors was the plot. They took inspiration from the Batman Legends of the Dark Knight and the graphic novel Batman Year One, basically establishing Batman Arkham Origins as, as you would expect, the origin story for Batman and a lot of the supervillains that he's going to be encountering over the course of the next few games. 
Now you might be wondering why I'm spending the time to go through all of this when we're doing a critique of the game. Why is this important? Well, this is important because it explains a ton about this game. Everything about it, from the texturing, to the level design, to the buildings and different assets they used, even to the multiplayer that they put in, was all developed with one end in mind. And that end was of course established by Batman Arkham City, which received many Game of the Year awards, was highly praised critically and commercially very successful. Warner Brothers thought that they were sitting on a cash cow with this franchise and that they could do pretty much whatever they wanted with it, pushing and pulling it wherever they wanted, in order to milk it for every dollar it was worth. And this is the unfortunate thing about the game. Once you've noticed this, it's really hard to unsee it. Seriously, so much of this game is copy and pasted from Batman Arkham City into Arkham Origins that at times it's straight up comical. As I described earlier with the ice grenades now simply being renamed glue grenades, having the exact same mechanic being used to patch vents and to create floating objects for you to walk on. Or even another example with Titan containers from Arkham City simply now being rebranded as dangerous chemicals, but the same thing is true, they're just big tanks that you're expected to blow up. They even copy in a lot of gameplay and narrative beat moments from Arkham City, such as the moment in Arkham City where Batman becomes infected with a toxin and is on the verge of death, on death's door, and barely survives. In this game, it's a fight against Copperhead, but don't worry, we're gonna talk about all of this in a moment. For all of these reasons, the game really just feels like a big expansion for Arkham City. Nothing is done differently. I mean, if you ask yourself, what's the difference between an expansion and a new game? Most people would say that the new game would be expected to shake things up, do some things differently, and have developed the gameplay mechanics beyond that of its predecessor. It's for this reason that a lot of expansions, such as Blood and Wine, which we've been playing over on Twitch, could be classified as its own standalone Witcher game. After all, it adds 25 hours of gameplay with all sorts of new stories to be told, in addition to many gameplay-altering improvements and mechanisms that have now been put in place. But at the same time, it's also why a game such as Arkham Origins feels so much like a cash grab or a poorly put-together expansion because it doesn't do anything differently from the predecessor other than some flashier cutscenes that were pre-rendered. There's also other things that are a little weird to me, such as the graphics, at least to me, seeming to be significantly worse. Everything looks very flat and dry, there's not much texture to the world, there's very little color other than the Christmas decorations that have been put up, it just doesn't look as good as even Batman Arkham City. Maybe it's because my nostalgia factor is just way off the charts and Arkham City holds a very near and dear place in my heart, which it certainly does, but it seems to me that the game certainly doesn't look better than Batman Arkham City, if that's the standard. Furthermore, the game world is actually the most empty of any of the game worlds in the entire series. And if you want to challenge me on that, I encourage you to go watch a video I did recently on the 30-second rule of the Batman Arkham series, where I actually used an Excel spreadsheet and a calculator and all sorts of predictive and descriptive analytics to go through these games and their worlds to figure out how they're built and whether or not they work. I don't want to beat a dead horse, so I'm not going to reiterate the entire video for you here. But the point is, effectively, that Batman Batman Arkham Origins world feels the least alive and impressive of any game in the series. 
Furthermore, beyond all of this is the real kicker, which are consistent glitches and a lack of polish throughout. Now, I should point out that for this critique, I played through the game again on my PC, recording all of the footage that you've been watching throughout the course of this video. Now, I can't say for certain, but from my research and from the people that I've spoken to over on the Discord and on Twitter, it seems as though the PC port of this game has been roundly mocked for being terrible. So it's probably just a PC port issue, but it is still a factor. Regardless though, I think it's important to point out the experience that I had while playing through the game. After all, you came to this video to see my thoughts on the game. I might as well show you all of the weird and funny glitches that I encountered while playing through it. It only seems fair. But far and away, the most severe issue I encountered was when the game crashed consistently and repeatedly in the same area over the course of about an hour. And I actually googled this very error code and it seems to be a common issue with the PC port of Batman Arkham Origins. It can occur anywhere from the menu to a loading screen to the ending credits, but I'm just glad that I was able to get past it because apparently for some people, this is a straight up game breaking bug that was never patched out and can delete save files and even lock you out of the game entirely. But that's enough of that. Let's talk for a moment about the in-game cutscenes versus the pre-rendered cutscenes that are all over the place. Pre-rendered cutscenes are a lot like a girlfriend or a boyfriend. They give a lot and they take a lot. They can improve the experience and they can also make it way worse. It really just depends on the context and the time that they show themselves. In the case of Batman Arkham Origins, these things are all over the place. And in some cases, it's a welcomed addition. These cutscenes look significantly better. They allow for improved facial animations and everything looks really, really good in these moments, especially cutscenes with the Joker. The only issue is when they immediately cut back to an in-game cutscene because for whatever reason they weren't able to develop it fully and it can be very, very jarring. You see, a lot of people would think that these pre-rendered cutscenes would be a good thing, or in other words, a net positive, because after all, if they allow for the cutscene to seem higher fidelity and higher quality, why wouldn't that improve the overall experience? Well, the main issue is just that players can tell that they are pre-rendered cutscenes, and that doesn't seem like it should be an issue, but it actually is when you're playing through the game and trying to get through a story fluidly. I mean, why do you think that Naughty Dog with The Last of Us Part Two or Uncharted 4 or even Sony Santa Monica with the newest God of War or Rockstar with the newest Red Dead Redemption 2? Why do you think these studios avoid using pre-rendered cutscenes but instead choose to go the route of in-game cutscenes with higher fidelity meshes being swapped out? It comes down to one word and that is fluidity. The fact that you can go between one cutscene and another and then a gameplay sequence and then back to a cutscene without ever having to cut to black or have the player feel as though they're shifting between a cutscene and a gameplay sequence. It's jarring and it's something that belongs in the past. Now this was a thing to some extent in Batman Arkham City. They did use pre-rendered cutscenes in that game. However, it was too much less of a flashy extent. I don't know how to phrase it other than that the cutscenes in this game, Batman Arkham Origins, 
feel like cutscenes. They don't feel like extensions of the gameplay. Whereas in Arkham City, the meshes look similar. They're not as flashy. The camera work isn't crazy cinematic. It's not jarring. This is a small complaint, I grant you, but I think it is significant because I noticed many times feeling disappointed when I got back to the in-game character model after having watched a really beautiful cutscene. And in my research, it seems as though the reason that this is the case is because the development studio over at Warner Brothers Montreal actually outsourced these cutscenes to another subsidiary studio who handled just those cinematic cutscenes. This means that Warner Brothers Montreal was never able to develop the animation system within the game and especially on characters' face models and character models beyond the very rudimentary basis that they had established earlier because all of the major narrative moments were going to be told by way of pre-rendered cinematics. But while we're on this topic, I do want to stress that I find Troy Baker's efforts as the Joker to be really impressive. I actually got to hand it to him. When I found out that Troy Baker, the same guy that played Joel from The Last of Us, was going to be playing the Joker, I was baffled and I was buckled in and ready to see what he had to bring to the table, but honestly, he did a fantastic job and should be very proud. I mean, this guy is coming after Mark Hamill, one of the greatest, if not the greatest voice actor to ever play the Joker, ever. I mean, he is a monolith in and of himself, and to come in and tackle the character of the Joker after one of those greats is a, a lofty feat. So I gotta applaud Troy Baker, really fantastic job. And beyond this, the writing is actually decent enough. The Christmas theme is fun, and I actually enjoyed it immensely, and... I gotta say, there were some really concerted efforts and consistent attempts at making this game world and the story way darker and more evil than in games past. Sure, there was killing and there was death and there were horrible things that went on in Arkham Asylum and Arkham City, but they tended to maintain a fairly cartoon-like vibe comic book feel, if you will. But in this game, especially thanks to the cinematics, they feel much grittier, much darker, much more real, and that's something I can appreciate. And it's a trend that we saw even more doubled down upon with Batman Arkham Knight, the game that we're going to be discussing next. So make sure that you subscribe to be notified of when that critique goes up. And this has become a bit of a tradition at this point, so I felt I would carry it on by pointing out my favorite cutscene and moment, narratively speaking, in the entirety of the game. And for this game, it actually ends up being the moment where Joker turns on Electrocutioner. And I, I won't spoil it, I'll just play it for you now. Appreciate and savor this moment. <laughs> Got that, Mr. Cushioner? Just who the hell? Are you? I'm the guy with the money. And the gun. <laughs> so, when I hire you to kill the Batman, you shut the hell up and kill the Batman! So do you have anything else to contribute? I didn't think so. <laughs>
This fruitcake is fantastic! Anyone want a piece? All right, meetings adjourn. Get out there and kill the bat. See what I mean? It's way darker, it's way grittier. It's something when I first played this game years ago, didn't expect to see at all. And just like Batman feels, the player ends up saying to themselves, this guy's different. The Joker is not messing around. I need to be careful. Now, as for the gameplay, really, there's not much to say. It's all just reskinned, but they put in many more boss fights that try to be memorable, but inevitably end up being more quick time heavy events. But don't worry, I'll talk about this more in a second when I address Copperhead specifically. Most of the tools have made a comeback in this game from the rope launcher to the remote controlled batarang. All these things are back and in full force. And like I stated earlier, some of the mechanisms are back, but they've been reskinned or have a fresh coat of paint so that it makes sense in the narrative, such as the ice grenade now being a glue grenade. It literally works in the exact same way it just has to be called something different because of course Batman had that invented for him in Batman Arkham City it wouldn't make sense for him to have it in a prequel to that game and really it's just more of the same Batman Arkham City is one of my favorite games of all time and the gameplay system has just been control seed and control V right back over to this game it feels very very similar the only major difference that i will mention is that in the stealth sequences of which there are plenty i noticed the ai feeling as though it were significantly decreased in terms of intelligence compared to that of the previous games many times i was able to get away with things i knew i probably shouldn't have been able to get away with especially with regards to the silent takedown and as far as I can tell, the only reason this was the case was because of the AI. I play these games on the hardest difficulty setting that they offer, and so I don't think it's tied to the difficulty setting. But I did notice myself many times saying to myself, that shouldn't have worked when it did. Now as for the boss fights, there's a lot in this game, and they're actually a welcomed addition, and I think it's something that Batman Arkham City could have played around with a lot more. You know, bigger fights that are built up much more are more difficult and require a lot more effort on the part of the player. The problem is that most of these boss fights tend to fit into one of a few categories. Either they're just a bunch of different smaller enemies protecting a larger enemy, such as a mini boss or it's a large guy that's then protected by littler guys after you start to deal damage and then you have to clear the smaller guys out and move on to the big guy right after it's a wash and repeat process and very rarely do you encounter boss fights where it's just you one-on-one -on -one with a difficult opponent and i will be honest this is not an end-all be-all that's okay especially considering the free flow combat system tends to work best when you're juggling enemies together bouncing between many all over the arena that you're fighting in that's when this game feels like it's at its best. When you're racking up the combo counter into the high 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and just slaying. That's when it works best. So to have a single opponent that you're just beating up on, dodging, and trying to use tools and abilities to defeat 
doesn't tend to work very well, but the Solomon Grundy fight, I would say, is an example of when it's done correctly and well. They have a simple mechanic that ties together, and then you have to deal with them. But these Arkham City examples don't do us a lot of good when we bring it over to Arkham Origins because, of course, this game didn't have the same development team, and so they tended to rest on the same laurels of throwing many opponents at the player and hoping that they figure it out. But the specific boss example that I wanted to address is of course Copperhead. The reason I want to talk about Copperhead is because she is the perfect example of everything that this game is. The fight against her is bland, repetitive, and in other words, just more of the same. It's more of the same in a micro and macro level. Clearly, this is an attempt at Rachel Ghoul's moment in Batman Arkham City. The only problem is that it fails at this. Everything from the way the combat in this boss fight works, in this case having lots of duplicates and mini fighters come at you all at once, to the moment where you find out that Batman has been poisoned and it's, oh no, Batman's dying again and needs an antidote very quickly, and then it's all better and everything's resolved and everything's great and they just move about their day. Furthermore, at this moment, Copperhead has just poisoned Batman and he's dying and she even says, out loud with every effort you hasten your end and then she just leaves <laughs> like she knows that if she pushes him he'll die faster and she's only gonna get paid if he dies but she just poises him and then leaves she's like being super lazy at this point I don't understand this at all. She could have just hopped down, punched him a little bit, made him work really hard to defend himself, and then he would have keeled over, died, she would collect her paycheck. But instead, she leaves him to walk out and get the cure from Alfred and is upset that she didn't get the paycheck. It's, it's really stupid. And that's the point. The whole game is like this fight. It's more of the same, which is fine, because City was so good, but it fails to bring anything new to the table and honestly just leaves players asking, why did this even need to be made? And the simple answer to that question is cash money. I'm gonna make it rain. I enjoyed Batman Arkham Origins because I love all of the Arkham games. I think they're fun and the fluid combat system is always a blast. But if I paid $60 for this game, I would be upset, which is why thankfully now you can get it anywhere between $5 and 15, depending on the day. And listen, I understand that a lot of people love Arkham Origins for one reason or another. The fact that it's a prequel, the fact that it's tonally different than the other games, the fact that it's not Arkham Knight, I understand that. But objectively, this game is the least ambitious in the series. I honestly don't see how you could argue any other way. You can enjoy the game, like I do, but that doesn't put it in anywhere near the spheres of influence as its predecessors or its successor. So deep in 
Cut it, cut it, no spoilers. Not yet. Hello everyone, welcome to another critique of a, a game that people played a while back. I'm Luke Stevens, this is Khaleesi, my co-host, and today we're gonna break down Arkham Knight. For those of you who've watched the channel for a little while, you'll know that the last time I showed off Khaleesi in a critique, she was way smaller than this. She's growing, she's getting bigger. Do you have anything you want to say? No, she doesn't. She's shy. Now, before anybody gets upset or leaves a pedantic comment of some sort, just know there are timestamps below in the description box of this video so you can jump around. I know that the video's long, so I've included those so that you can jump to the parts you find interesting or watch it in parts, whatever works for you. Now, Arkham Knight is sort of an enigma because it was developed by Rocksteady, who is, of course, the developers of Batman Arkham Asylum and Arkham City, two games that were phenomenally well-received when they launched and that won all sorts of Game of the Year awards when they did launch. However, after the launch of Arkham City, Rocksteady told their parent company, Warner Brothers, that they were going to need a lot more time to develop Arkham Knight than they initially expected. And that's why we got Arkham Origins as an intermediary game between Arkham City and Arkham Knight to basically fill the gap so that Warner Brothers wasn't just sitting on the property for four or five years without a release. You okay? You okay? She's exploring. Now, if you want to know more about Arkham Origins, I did a full critique on it. I'll have it linked in the description box below. Go check it out if you're really interested. I'm not going to cover it too much. Point being, it was developed by a studio other than Rocksteady, and Rocksteady has always been kind of weird about it. They don't like talking about it in the same way that Bethesda's weird about Fallout New Vegas because some people really liked it, but it's also not part of their work, and so it's sort of the black sheep of the family. They're not sure whether they should include it as part of the series, as part Part of the franchise or if it should be just a spin-off and nothing more and for this reason Rocksteady even to this day only refers to Arkham Knight as the completion of the trilogy not the completion of the quadrilogy. Furthermore over the course of this video we're going to be looking at a lot of the things that Rocksteady changed and adapted over the course of the last four years of development after Arkham City. Arkham Origins didn't do a lot differently nor was it trying to. They fully admitted that Arkham City got a lot right and they weren't gonna mess with the, the formula. As the saying goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But all of this to say, Arkham Knight was a fantastic opportunity for Rocksteady as it was the first game that they had developed that was exclusively for next generation consoles. Something that doesn't seem like a hugely big deal, but for Rocksteady, a company that was always pushing this, this hardware to the absolute limits, that's a big deal. Especially when you go back and you play through Arkham City and you realize just how ahead of its time that game really was. It feels better and higher quality, more next generation than a lot of next generation titles that launched, such as Shadow of War, which is something we've been playing over on Twitch, a game that launched in 2017 and feels less impressive, technologically speaking, than Arkham City, which launched on the 360 and PS3. And I can't stress this enough, the tech inside Arkham Knight is so damn impressive, I had trouble quantifying it and putting it into words for the sake of this video script and outline. It's absolutely ridiculous. The game launched on June 23rd of 2015 and to this day looks incredible. Honestly, I think that Arkham Knight might be one of, if not the best looking games of all time. It's 
ridiculous. But going into this analysis, I think it's important that we set the foundation and understand what Rocksteady was trying to do, because we can always evaluate a game on two basic playing fields. On the one hand, we can evaluate it based on what we expected from it, the type of game that we wanted and that we would have liked to see. Or we can evaluate it based on what the artist, or in this case the developers, were trying to accomplish. And usually you want to evaluate something as a mix of the two in order to come to the actual conclusion in terms of quality of the product. And by far the most important thing you need to understand about Arkham Knight going into this video and into the game if you're going to play it is that the entire experience was crafted around the Batmobile. And this isn't just my opinion, this is actually coming from the developers who made these design choices. Everything was going to be based on the fact that the Batmobile is an extension of Batman and that it's going to extend the range of possibilities in terms of gameplay options, exploration, world size, and the like. I swear, she's just slowly moving down my arm. Do you wanna go back in your cage? You wanna go back? Yeah. Yeah, she does. Okay, I'm going to put her back. Boom. Now I'm going to go into a lot of detail with regards to the Batmobile in a later section of this video. I'm going to deep dive into it because it's such a major facet of the game and its design. But for the sake of this introductory section, I will just say they put a lot of effort into it and they put a lot of eggs in this basket. And for most players, it didn't pay off. The Batmobile felt as though it was just a tank. It felt out of place in a Batman game, especially a Rocksteady Batman game. It just didn't feel right. And this isn't just something that's been developed over the course of a few years on Reddit and YouTube comments and all of that. This was something that people were saying back when the game's initial E3 trailer launched at E3 of 2014. I know because I went back and I looked at the comment section of that announcement trailer and went back to the comments from 2014. And a lot of people were actually saying, great, Batman is a tank mech game straight out of Japan now. Whoop-de-doo. But let me just say this also, this video isn't going to be this sort of groupthink circle jerk where we all just echo the same opinion about how the bat tank sucks. And while that is true, and while we're gonna address that and discuss it, I wanna deep dive into a lot of the things that the game does very, very well, because a lot of the stuff that Batman Arkham Knight does is far more impressive than any of the previous games in the series, and even far more impressive than a lot of games that are launching today in 2019. So basically all I'm asking is that you give me the opportunity to explain myself, my positions and opinions, watch the whole video, and then, pick apart my arguments and, and dissect why I'm wrong with everything. Because I'm sure I'm wrong about some stuff and I'm, I have no doubts that you guys will let me know what I'm wrong about below. All I ask is that you at least hear me out. And furthermore, to give complete context to this whole situation with Batman Arkham Knight, it's important to understand that the game had a very troubled launch, not on consoles, but on PC. The obvious question is how bad was the PC port? Were these issues real or was it just internet outrage taking over as it usually does. Well, it actually was so bad that Warner Brothers halted all PC sales of Arkham Knight. Full stop. They halted sale of the game because it was so broken. It was locked at 30 FPS, even though high-end $3,000 computer systems weren't able to run the game above 15 frames per second. It had 
basically no customization options in terms of uh, visual fidelity and graphic options. And it also had a lot of visual elements such as rain particle effects going up against the Batmobile and all sorts of things like that stripped from the console versions. So the game actually ran and looked way better on consoles than it did on PC. Now I actually dug into this and it turns out that the port for the PC was outsourced to a company by the name of Iron Galaxy. And this is actually the same company that handled the Switch port of Skyrim for Bethesda. I know a lot of people thought that Bethesda did this and I think they did some of it. All that Iron Galaxy said was that they helped with the port, but apparently they were in charge of that. And this is also interesting, they helped and handled the PC port of Arkham Origins, which is apparently where they set up this relationship with Warner Brothers initially. You know, that PC port that I talked about in my critique of the game that was so bad that I had game-breaking bugs and crashes on my PC to the point where I just couldn't play it anymore at all until I like reinstalled everything that one. <laughs> now, a lot of stuff goes on behind the scenes with regards to technical issues, so I don't want to just pass all sorts of blame off to Iron Galaxy. I, I can't even fathom how hard it is to port something that was developed exclusively for consoles all the way over to PC and account for all of the different types of hardware, but it does seem as though there was a pattern with Iron Galaxy not doing a really fantastic job or a stand-up job of these ports. It seems as though this had happened before and Warner Brothers just figured we'll deal with it when we come to that. But the port was so horrible, it just simply wasn't quality tested at all. And executives over at Warner Brothers even said as much, saying that the quality assurance process, the QA process, simply didn't happen with regards to the PC port. Which makes sense because if you had played it at launch, you would have realized there was no reason that this should have ever, ever happened. If anybody booted up the game, they would have seen that it was unplayable. But that's exactly the point. No one booted it up. But I will say Warner Brothers handled the crisis relatively well. They announced that they were halting sales and they weren't going to sell a broken product. They said that they encouraged anybody who felt as though the game wasn't up to their quality standards. So basically everyone to go and return the game, even though that would cost Warner Brothers a good chunk of change on every single return. Because if you're not familiar, if you buy a game on Steam, Steam takes a 30% cut of the sale. Once that happens, if you choose to return the game, Steam does not refund all of that 30% back to the player from their own coffers. They actually require the developer to pay that difference because Steam is like, well, we did our job. We didn't do anything wrong, so we're gonna keep our cut. You have to make up the difference, which is why this sort of return demo idea freaks a lot of developers out because it costs them a lot of money. But I gotta hand it to Warner Brothers. They actually handled this whole crisis fairly well, at least as well as you could expect somebody to if they launched a product that they didn't quality test or check at all. Coffee break. I'm just saying, if you haven't tried the Nitro Cold Brew stuff, they're not sponsoring me. I just would love it if they did. They don't do that though, let's be honest. If they did, I, I would lose my nuts. But my point being, the Nitro Cold Brew is very, very good. I am a sucker. And actually, in the state of Colorado, they can't sell a size larger than this because it has, I think it's 370 grams or milligrams, not grams, milligrams of caffeine in it. So it's actually significantly, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> potent with regards to caffeine, so they can't actually sell a larger size legally because it exceeds the legal amount that's sellable within a single cup of coffee, which is ridiculous, but that, you know, it gives me energy for these critiques. In case you didn't know, like this takes usually six to eight hours to film a video like this. So it's, it's kind of rigorous. Uh, this is a tangent. I'm moving on. The point of all of this is just that Warner Brothers had a PR disaster on their hands with the PC port, and that has affected a lot of people's opinions of the game, even people that have never played the game. I didn't play the game up until I started preparing for this critique, specifically for that reason, where I thought that the game was so broken it wasn't worth playing. I had heard all of this horrible stuff about it, and so I just didn't bother, and my opinion was tainted as a result of that PR disaster, which they absolutely deserved after launching a product that they didn't quality check even once. They didn't try it even once before launch. But this is part of the reason that we're going to evaluate the game in its purest, patchiestest form, giving it a fair shot as a game, not as the launch product. Because if you wanted to play the game today, you would be playing it in its patched form. So it doesn't do us a lot of good to go back and look at it from the perspective of the launch release. But it's important to give you that context so that you understand a lot more about what's going on. Point being, we're not gonna hop on the hate bandwagon. We're gonna give the game the opportunity it deserves, the chance it deserves, because that's what America is all about. That's what this world needs. That's what gaming needs. This ad was paid for by sellout YouTubers like Luke. But, uh, I, I just blacked out for like 20 seconds. What happened? More coffee. All you need to know is that I played through Arkham Knight on my Xbox One X. A lot of it I played through on stream and then went back and recorded footage of. So I played through this game probably about one and three quarters times because I would play through three hours on stream. And then I'd go back, play through that section again, but record it all. And then I'd play another three hours by myself. And then we just bounced back and forth like that. So I have a very good idea of what this game has to offer but I did not play it on PC specifically because I didn't feel like that was the best representation of the game given all of those port issues even today but that's kind of everything you need to know setting up this whole review and critique I know this took a little while but I wanted to give you as much context as you possibly could handle moving into the rest of this video as I said at the top timestamps are below feel free to jump around to the sections that seem most interesting to you or just watch it in one fail swoop which is what cool people do I shouldn't have to say this for a video that's going to be critique but I'll say it anyways this video is going to spoil everything so if you haven't played the game and plan on playing it or even are just interested in watching a playthrough go do that first because I will be spoiling basically everything. In terms of difficulty, some people are interested in knowing how I approach that. I tend to play games on the difficulty that I feel best represents the game and that most players are going to feel a closest relation to. So if most players are playing a game on normal, I'll critique it and review it on normal while switching to hard occasionally to push it to its limits. The Arkham games and any game with a free flow combat system I always find remarkably easy and button mashy so to shake it up I usually play through those games on the hardest possible difficulty to push myself to my limits and make sure that I am using all of the tools at my disposal with regards to the gameplay and this game is no different I played through Arkham Knight on the hardest possible difficulty for a first run through no new game plus or anything 
to try to push myself as much as I could. But we have a lot to discuss, and we're going to tackle all of it in the next few minutes. We're going to talk about the story, gameplay, combat, the Batmobile, everything. But we are going to skip past some of the smaller stuff that I don't feel is as important. We're not going to talk a lot about the graphics or the sound design or anything like that. I don't think that that's super important after the game launches four years on nor are we going to talk about the DLC. There's a lot of different little pieces of DLC. It's all pretty minor. There's like a big head expansion, which makes all the characters' heads big. The Red Hood DLC, for instance, is fun and it allows you to play as Red Hood. It feels basically the same, but it's like 10 minutes long. So it's just not really worth covering, but it's as with all of this DLC, if you're honestly interested in the game, if you get through it all the way and you're like, I want more, play the DLC. If you don't want more, don't bother. It's not going to change your mind. There's nothing in here like Blood and Wine or Hearts of Stone that's like a new game. It's just a bunch of little stuff. But with all that said, let's get started. Now to begin, let's talk about the story. And I want to frame this as well as I can. And I don't want to go through the entire game, but I do want to give you a good perspective on how well this game sets everything up and how differently it approaches storytelling compared to even the previous games in the franchise. It really tries some new stuff, some experimental stuff and I absolutely love it. So to begin, we're gonna go through the first chapter or so of the story together, breaking it apart and discussing what we see. The game opens with actually the same clip that I showed you at the beginning of the video. This is the prologue, and we're treated to this fun little scene of the Joker from Batman Arkham City being cremated after he dies at the end of that game. It's actually a weirdly beautiful moment as you see him loaded up into the oven I guess is what you call I know that's not very like poetic I don't know what else you would call it what is the name of like a cremation chamber is that what we call it apparently it's also known as a retort or just it is the crematory so I I don't I don't anyway he's loaded up into it and then the player is actually given the ability to turn the knobs and start the gas and and flames coming down to burn him into ash it's kind of a weirdly calming and beautiful moment even though it starts with the destruction of one of the most beloved characters in all of comic book history the game actually frames it in a weirdly pleasant way it's kind of weird after this we find ourselves in control not of batman but actually of a gcpd officer in the first person's perspective walking into a coffee shop and for me and a lot of other players i'm sure even in 2019 we looked at this and we thought for sure, this was going to be a pre-rendered cutscene. It's so beautiful. The fidelity and everything is just so ridiculously high. It must be pre-rendered. But no, it's it's actually running in real time. And you realize this once you sit down at the counter and start talking with the waitress that's across the counter. And you realize that this is all running real time. Because you can actually control the camera and move around and look at stuff. And uh, oh, oh, look at that. Look who that is. That poster on the fridge. This is only going to be significant if you've played the game before because this is actually the same Henry that Batman has locked up that you see later in the game and eventually goes insane when he's uh, revealed to have been infected with the Joker's blood back in Arkham City when Joker said that he sent his blood all around Gotham to infect people. I mean, this doesn't make a lot of sense, that fact that just getting injected with his blood turns them into him. Maybe I missed some broader explanation. Maybe the Titan virus that's within him causes some sort of 
brain alteration to the point where they become like the same person. I don't know. It's not clearly explained and it's a little weird that Joker's blood just going into somebody could do this, but you know what? It's fun and it's a cool excuse to get more of the Joker copy and paste it onto different characters and molds, but it's still kind of weird. Furthermore, it also shows that they likely had a lot of this stuff planned out back in Arkham City. The fact that they planted that seed, not just with Scarecrow in the boat that you can find out on the harbor in Arkham City, but also you can see the seeds with regards to Joker's actions, sending his blood all around the city, setting up the events of this game. It's not clear if they just threw those out and then we're like, okay, we'll figure out how we connect those to the next game when we get there, or if they actually set that up because they knew exactly what they were going to do. It's not really clear which it is, but either way, it's cool that they were able to connect the two. Now, eventually one of the people who's at the diner you're sitting in will alert you that some dude is off in the corner and he's smoking, which is not allowed within that diner. And the police officer being a good guy is like, just let me handle it, I got it. You walk over to the guy, pat him on the shoulder, and then he turns around and has a spooky ghost seat face, and it, it's, it's very spooky. And at this point, everything goes to absolute hell. It's kind of ridiculous how quickly everything blows up. Eventually, everybody's fighting with themselves and each other. The guy pulls out his gun and starts shooting people. And it just seems to be going to absolute hell. Turns out what actually happened is the fear toxin was actually uh, pumped into this diner and everybody was hallucinating, seeing these horrible demons that drove them absolutely crazy. And once again, it just serves to set up the fact that Scarecrow is going to be the main antagonist of this game. Even though the game is titled Arkham Knight, the Arkham Knight isn't actually the main antagonist. And it, in my opinion, sets up the first kind of conflicting idea with regards to the game's writing, where the player isn't sure if they should be more against the Arkham Knight or more against Scarecrow. For a while, they're working together, but they don't set it up clearly. And the fact that they set it up as Arkham Knight being the subtitle of the game, at least for me, was a clear indication that there was going to be some big plot twist with regards to the Arkham Knight. He was probably going to flip-flop and start helping you at some point, and Scarecrow would remain the main antagonist, even though they didn't name the game after him. And I mean, also, let's be real, Batman Arkham Scarecrow doesn't roll off the tongue as well as Batman Arkham Knight, so I get it. Now, after all of this and a long cutscene explaining what the hell just happened, we actually get to start controlling Batman, gliding through the city, and we have to go meet up with Gordon in order to discuss what's going on and what's happening. It's just a fun little training sequence and tutorial sequence in case this was anybody's first exposure to the games. And it also shows off the incredible and stupidly high graphical fidelity we're dealing with. Now, when you're talking to Gordon, he says that he's been tracking an armored carrier that's driving through Bleak Island. And he believes that this is going to be the key to finding Scarecrow, who's responsible for what they consider to be an act of terrorism in the diner. And by the end of this discussion, you find out that a patrol car has gone missing and there's a police officer that's missing. So then you get diverted and you have to go find that 
missing police officer and help him. Speaking of, this is also the way that they were able to justify there not being a ton of civilians in the game. The whole fear toxin thing, it's basically their excuse for evacuating that area of the city because Scarecrow said he was going to continue to drop these fear toxins and he's going to continue to gas the area causing all sorts of mayhem and, and damage. And so pretty much everyone bailed and then they issued an actual evacuation notice. But by that point, most people were gone already. So again, it's just an easy, clean excuse as to why there's no civilians the Batman has to really worry about. So after this, you travel down into Chinatown to look for the missing cop. You find him being beat up by a bunch of thugs that are surrounding him, and this serves as the quick little tutorial. With regards to the free flow combat system, it works pretty well, well enough, I guess you could say. Once you've defeated all of the guys, you go over, rescue the cop, you lift him up to a perch and say that you're going to send somebody to get him, even though it's not clear that Batman ever does this or anybody comes to get him. But, you know, you got to clear out these side characters. Don't let them get in the way. Plus, it sets up one of the coolest moments, I think, that the game has to offer. Now, unfortunately, they spoiled this with all of the ads that ran before the game launched. I think it would have been really cool if they had kept the Batmobile secret and just pitch this as another continuation of the Arkham series without anything special. Because in this moment, they say Batman stands up and turns around and a big military vehicle breaks into the, the square where you were just fighting those guys. And it gives you the prompt to even the odds. And at this point, you're like, what does that mean? What is evening the odds? And you just press the button. Batman jumps down and jumps into the Batmobile as it spins around and you realize, Okay, this is evening the other. It was, it was a really cool moment. It was really, really cool. I was very impressed by it. I just wish it hadn't been spoiled for me by all of the, the ads and trailers that they launched. You drive around, you chase him, and eventually you're able to destroy the car and you are able to start interrogating the guy that was driving it. At this point, he tells you of a safe house that Scarecrow is using that's in Chinatown. And after you knock the guy out, you get back in the Batmobile, you go over to the Chinatown district of Bleak Island, and you start to investigate this safe house. As you would expect, there's a ton of thugs here. You beat them up, and then you're treated to a quick little message by Scarecrow. And then you break out Poison Ivy. She tells you some stuff. But there's actually a really cool moment in this sequence that isn't actually talked about much, at least in like the articles and reviews that I found. It's really cool call forward, I guess, to what's going to happen later in the game. Scarecrow actually says that Batman should remember this area, that he should familiarize himself with it because this is going to be the place of some of the horrors that will continue over the course of the, the following night. And it's true. This is actually the same safe house in the exact same area, the exact same chamber that Barbara is seemingly killed in later in the game. And it's a super cool narrative call forward that I, I didn't catch while I was playing the game because obviously I didn't remember that they were going to, I was going back to the exact same area, but going back through my footage, I realized that's the exact same place. That's really cool. And he actually tells Batman something bad's going to happen here. I, I just really like it. This is like these are the things I love is when games are able to interweave their narratives, tying call forwards, callbacks, everything together. It, it works very, very well. I love this type of thing so much. I even did a video dedicated to it, which I'll have linked below. I talk about several movies I love that do it and several games that do these sort of narrative call forwards and callbacks all tied together. It's super cool to me. And so after this, you go down the elevator and you hop out and you realize that a bunch of tanks have shown up and this is the first moment where I started to see what people were complaining about with regards to the game's tank usage. 
You see, these tanks are property of the Arkham Knight, who is this sort of mysterious, shady figure who comes in and is just talking about Batman, saying that he knows Batman better than he knows himself. That's kind of the whole point of the Arkham Knight, that he knows all of Batman's weaknesses and how to take advantage of them. And so he decides to assault Batman and Poison Ivy with a fleet of tanks which would normally take out any superhero. Perfectly reasonable to do. And you realize at this point that there aren't any people in these, these tanks, these drones as they're called, for reasons. Now, I don't need to explain the fact that Batman doesn't kill people. That's like Batman 101. That's like not even 101. That's Batman 01. Everybody knows that. And beyond that, most people would say that it doesn't feel right for Batman to be using guns, period. Sure, there might be cases in the comics where, like, yeah, I guess some militarization and items that are are very high-powered he uses in certain cases. But it certainly doesn't feel very Batman-esque to use a tank himself. But if we're going to do that for the sake of the game, so be it. Whatever. I can live with that. But the problem is that the Arkham Knight is supposed to know Batman better than he knows himself. And he chose to have unmanned drones. If he were actually concerned with taking out Batman once and for all, with killing him as an act of revenge, why wouldn't he just put one random person in each of the tanks, whether it's one of his soldiers or even just a civilian or like an orphan that he kidnapped from an orphanage. It would be so easy. It doesn't make any sense at all. And the only time I ever heard any character in the entire game try to explain this away was a moment where the Arkham Knight actually says to Batman over the radio signals or whatever that he has all of these unmanned drones specifically because he wanted to push Batman to his limits. Which doesn't make sense, because if he were trying to push him to his limits, he would have gone and put people inside. So if Batman wanted to survive, he would have had to kill somebody. But no, he didn't do that because it has to have tanks in it. Now, I don't want to go too much into detail with this because I'm going to discuss it a lot more in the tank section later on. But this is the first moment where I started really questioning why the Batmobile was here and why all of these drone fights were in here because they don't make sense narratively speaking. You can tell they decided to put this in for the sake of the gameplay. They didn't really give a crap if it didn't make sense with regards to the narrative, which is a problem, whether we like to admit it or not. But as you go about, you fight a bunch more tank battles. They keep throwing more and more drones at you. You keep blowing them up. And already, this whole mechanic is starting to get old. You keep waiting for them to take it up a notch, and it just never happens. Eventually, you get Ivy back to the GCPD building. You send her into lockup, and then you get to walk around this police station, which actually is a really cool hub. And I was hoping that this would be used a lot more than it was. It's used a few times in the story where you're supposed to go back here, collect a weapon, and then go about your business. But there's actually a really cool area, sort of a museum, where they have all of these artifacts from the previous games locked up in glass cases where you can actually look at them and analyze them. And it's so, so cool. I actually spent a solid like 15 minutes going to each and every item, pressing A and listening to the voice recording that explains what that item was and some of the lore behind it. It was super, super cool to me and I loved it. And there's actually kind of a weird little secret in this area. If you want to jump right into some of the Riddler's tougher challenges, you can actually break the glass of these 
cases and then take your weapons and, and tools back. And nobody in the police station will say anything because it's Batman's to begin with. So do what you will. It's too bad you had to break the glass to do it. You could have just asked somebody with a key. But whatever, you broke the glass, you take the gun, and you can actually go and uh, finish up a lot of the different missions and uh, Riddler puzzles that you wouldn't get access to otherwise if you were doing it properly and waiting to get that item until you're basically mandated to later in the game uh, with the main story. Now, at this point, I was straight up falling in love with the game, except for the tank section, which I think was true of most people who played it. Everything so far has been well rationed, it's reasonably paced, it's beautiful, and the story is actually pretty interesting. Scarecrow is awesome, and having just played the game and having gone through all of my footage once again to catalog it for this critique, it's clear that they knew exactly where they were going and what they were doing with the story, and they planted these seeds all the way throughout. Like I said earlier with the case of the area where Barbara is eventually seemingly killed. I really was loving it at this point, but it was clear that some issues were starting to peak up and that they could start to get way worse as the game went on. And like I said, this is most people's criticism of the game and it's mine as well. It can't make up its mind as to whether it wants to be a Batman game through and through or if it wants to be a Batmobile tank destroying mech game. It can't decide and it keeps trying to play both as though they are perfectly working in tandem when they just aren't. Most fans wanted a straight Batman game in the same vein as we got with Arkham Asylum and Arkham City. But you know what? I'm sure that they spent millions and tons of time on the R&D for the Batmobile. They developed this thing through and through, and it does work very well. It's very fluid and it is beautiful. It runs fantastically well. You can tell they put a lot of effort into it. But the thing is, they got through all of that development and then they started putting it into the game and they realized probably if they had any sort of IQ above room temperature that it just wasn't fun. <laughs> it just wasn't enjoyable and it didn't fit Batman. But at that point, they had spent so much time and so much money developing it that they knew they had to use it in some capacity. And so they decided to just sprinkle it all over the game and hope that players found it interesting and enjoyed it. It's, it's too bad because it was a gamble that they made and it just didn't pay off. It shows you just how important the concepting phase of game development really is because these decisions are made years in advance. The decision to put the Batmobile all throughout the game was made years and years and years before the even outline of the city was drawn up. They knew that they were going to have to do that, and they spent a lot of money developing that bat tank for play. And the fact that they weren't able to look forward in their minds and see just how disgruntled and disjointed it was going to be when put in with the rest of the game shows that they had a, a real blind spot in their director's vision. It, it's pretty significant. This stuff doesn't tend to happen a lot where a sequel to a previously very well-established franchise misses the mark so significantly. I'm not sure if there were things going on with regards to studio management turnover or maybe they just had this idea for the bat tank and they honestly thought players would love it i don't know what it is either way it just didn't work but with all that said let's jump to the end of the game and discuss how the game finishes everything at the very end of the game scarecrow seems to have won and he has batman all locked up and starts injecting him with fear toxin and at this point the player is then sent to a really weird sequence that I don't think anybody saw coming. 
Now we'll talk about this more later, but throughout the whole game, the Joker is appearing in every single sequence that you go through, talking to you, even as you fly through the city, he'll pop up on rooftops with you, covertly hidden. It's fantastically well done, and he has all sorts of hilarious one-liners, again, that we'll go through later. But it's initially fun and games, and you're, you're kind of glad to have the Joker back, especially after expecting him to be gone for good after his death in Batman Arkham City, and especially after the intro of the game where you show the Joker being cremated. But at this point, as the fear toxin is being pumped into Batman more and more, you see that his real fears lie with the Joker, which I think a lot of Batman fans that are more casual fans might not put together. They kind of think of him just as another bad guy in Batman's uh, lineup of enemies that he works through in various movies, comic books, TV shows, whatever it may be. But in reality, the Joker is different for Batman. The Joker is chaotic. It's one reason that people loved Arkham Origins so much, because in that game, we see Batman realize that the Joker is different. And in this moment, when we get to play as the Joker driving around his version of the Batmobile, it seems like the only self-aware moment in the game where the game is like, yeah, this is a tank that kills people. <laughs> and you get the opportunity to do that. You go around, you shoot everybody, you use the cannon, you blow everything up. And I thought it was going to call out the fact that Batman had been using a tank all along, but he couldn't bring himself to actually kill people. But instead, they just kind of skirt past that. It's like they knew that it was the bat tank and that this was a killing machine, but they had just been coming up with excuses as to why it worked with Batman throughout the whole game. And then they show off what it actually is for and what Batman actually thinks of it at the very end in this sequence, but they never really mention it directly. And it seems more like it was just supposed to be a moment where we see the Joker killing a lot of people. I don't know. Point is you go around, you shoot everything, you blow everything up, and then you get a super move where it launches a ton of different rockets and you blow basically everything up, killing everybody. Joker hops out of the Batmobile and pulls out a shotgun at which point you start going through the hallways and exploring sort of the memories and thoughts of the Joker. You see Cobblepot and you see a lot of other people groveling for their lives. And instead of playing the way Batman does, weirdly, it works very well, where the player immediately puts themselves in the shoes of the Joker and just shoots everybody. Literally everyone I've asked, every playthrough I've watched, every streamer I've checked in on, all of them immediately pull the trigger and kill everybody in sight. They wholeheartedly embrace the Joker. I'll be honest, it also made me think just how cool a rock steady suicide squad game could be where you're actually playing as the evil character and the more evil you are the better you do in the game that's like a whole point i thought that could be so so damn cool i don't know if we'll ever see it but this sequence made me really want it i don't know let me know what you think below because i want to see it and eventually after you go through all of these different hallways and corridors you reach an area where the joker looks out on the city as it's burning and is super excited because he's seeing what the world would be like without Batman, or in this case, I guess, without himself. And then we cut back to Batman tied up, but we go and see the Joker tied up, showing that they're two sides of the same coin, that they are inextricably connected and there's no escape from each other, at least seemingly in this moment. Scarecrow then injects him with even more fear toxin because he doesn't seem to be afraid. He seems to be embracing 
the fear. Again, showing why the Joker and Batman work so well together, because again, they're two sides of the same coin. You continue going through all of these different corridors, seeing things such as a statue of the Joker falling over, indicating to the Joker that he's being forgotten, and he starts to panic and freak out at this prospect, insisting that he couldn't possibly be forgotten. And then he shows up at his wake where Harley is crying and you see that nobody attended. Nobody gave a crap. Everyone was glad that the Joker was gone and it starts to mess with him. You eventually reach an open courtyard and there's a bunch of statues of Batman that appear in front of you as you turn all around every which way. You keep shooting them down, keep breaking them down. They keep reappearing in more and more and more of them. And eventually you break out into a hallway where you see an exit and the Joker is kind of laughing it off saying oh you got me I, I was really starting to get scared for a minute but you know we're all good we're chill and then the following happens i'll just let it play because I, I love it so much oh you know you almost had me scared back there me <laughs> what have i got to be afraid of Afraid of being ashes. You're afraid of being forgotten. And you will be forgotten, Joker. Because of me. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman. Goodbye, Joker. No, Bruce! Don't leave me! Please! I need you. Understand, Gotham. You have no savior. No more hope. No more Batman. I've won. I'm not afraid, Crane. Impossible. Without fear, life is meaningless. Scared. 
He's strong. He's going to be okay. Look after him, Jim. Look after them all. You've been a good friend. The best I could ask for. You were there at the beginning. And now... You get to see how it ends. And after this, the main story is over, at least for most people. However, if you want the true ending or endings, you have to complete all of the side quests. So the Gotham's most wanted side quests that we'll talk about in a little bit. If you've completed seven of the quests, then you get a partial final ending. But if you complete all of the quests, you get the true final ending where you see the Nightfall Protocol being called into effect where Bruce Wayne walks into his mansion and then the whole thing blows up and it seems as though he just committed suicide, which is kind of weird. But then at the very end, we're treated to another cutscene where it seems as though Batman has returned, but is now using the Scarecrow fear toxin on his enemies in order to instill fear. Because the whole point of Batman was that he was going to instill fear in criminals so that they would no longer be criminals or do evil things, at least in Gotham, because fear is the only way to truly control people, or at least truly control criminals. It's a cool ending, and it's not really clear how this ties into the rest of the series or what this explains, but it does fulfill the promise that this is the story of how the Batman dies, because everyone believes that Batman had died once the mansion exploded. After all, they found out on the TV broadcast that it was Bruce Wayne who was Batman, and then he walks into his mansion and the mansion blows up. So, of course, Batman died. I, I don't know. It's it's a, it's an interesting finish. I'm not sure how I feel about the fact that you have to 100% the game to actually see this final ending. I think the overwhelming majority of people are just going to pull it up on YouTube after they finish. But still, it's it's a cool way to finish everything. And to wrap up this ending discussion, I can't describe how much this ending and the approach to the Joker sequence surpassed all of my expectations for the ending, not just to the game, but also to the franchise and the series, at least as far as we know. It's just so clean and does such a beautiful and masterful job of putting the Joker to bed once and for all, at least with the player and also with Batman and in his mind. They do such a good job with this. I found myself even feeling sad as though I was going to miss the Joker as he was being sent off to be permanently forgotten and locked up. It's a really weird feeling. Once again, like this is a horribly evil man, but I think a lot of people forget that and find themselves more endeared by his personality and his liveliness and his seeming just love of existence itself and joy and his celebration of it. Even if he does that in a chaotic way that's at the cost of many people's uh, health and happiness and lives, we still find ourselves kind of intrigued by it because he's so carefree, he's so careless, and he seems to just love life in the purest possible form. But it, it sends him off in a way that is honest, is pure to what the characters would be thinking and what they would be saying. And the final line that the Joker tells Batman, I need you, works just so well and hit me right in the feels. I absolutely loved it. And I, I got to hand it to the writers over at Rocksteady. I, I was unsure of where they were going with the story throughout most of Arkham Knight, as we'll discuss in just a minute. But the way they wrapped this up was just so fantastically well done. I got to applaud them for it. Now, with regards to the story on a broad level and in terms of broad perspectives, 
It's pretty well done. However, there are some really predictable moments as you play through it. For instance, the one that stands out to me is Barbara's death. When this happened on stream, when I saw her shoot herself in the head, immediately I called out on stream, I bet that's fake. That's probably fake because we were just exposed to the fear toxin. I mean, the question of course is, did that actually happen since he just ingested a ton of fear toxin? Batman, what happened at the safe house was not some I, cruel game. I kind of imagine it, it did. I hope it did. Tonight is it needs to be consequences. So eventually when the plot twist is revealed that she didn't actually kill herself, it didn't hit me with any significant feeling of surprise. Honestly, if Batman is, after all, the world's greatest detective, you would think that he would be a little skeptical of it or at least go back and check to make sure it was her body or send somebody who wasn't infected with the fear toxin to check. Also, you would think that with all of his like detective scanners and all of that, he could scan her and see her identity if she actually was dead and that that wouldn't have been affected by the fear toxin either. It, it, there's just some, some weirdness with it, some plot holes with regards to it. But as we've discussed already, there are some weird plot holes throughout the entire game, like with the tank issue with the Arkham Knight. So I guess we can look past it. But on the other hand, some of these moments and twists are completely unforeseen. I did not expect to be playing as the Joker, driving a Joker painted and themed Batmobile, running around with a shotgun, killing all of the people that I had seen in the previous games. I did not expect that to happen. Call me crazy. I loved that surprise reveal and I am damn glad they didn't spoil it in the trailers because Lord knows they love to do that. And overall, there were a lot of little nods and little moments of love that they put into the story that they didn't need to. For instance, after you take out all the goons in the Joker bat tank, you go into a smaller room and there's a record player playing the song Only You by The Platters. You've been through enough, my dear. Tell everyone about it. I love this song. Now, to most people, this would just seem like a fun old-timey song that they're playing, but this is actually the same exact song that the Joker sings to Harley at the end of Arkham City while the credits roll. Only you can make the darkness bright. Only you and you It's such a cool little callback, and it's something I wouldn't have noticed if I weren't a massive fan of The Platters. Like, for real, I have a bunch of their records. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I also took it as uh, a statement on this being the moment where Joker dies a second time because that song played after Joker died physically, and now he's about to die metaphysically. I don't know, I just thought it was cool. Maybe there's more to it. Maybe a writer explained it and I just couldn't find the article on it. I don't know if you have any thoughts or found anything. Let me know in the comment section below. I'm sure me and everybody else watching would be really interested to know, so let me know. But the one thing I will say is that the Arkham Knight falls damn flat 
about halfway through the game, they start to show these flashbacks with the previous Robin that Batman had been working with and how he was captured by the Joker and the Joker eventually did a bunch of evil stuff to him, brainwashed him, did all sorts of horrible things. And at this point, he decides to turn on Batman and he's he's freaking out and trying to destroy him. What are you doing? Sorry, she's pawing at the glass. You see, I had to put her food in the bowl because she won't eat it if I put it in the sand, like her worms and stuff. And you know, she's such a spoiled little brat. She's like, give me more worms now, I'm hungry. She, I, she's incredulous. Point of the Arkham Knight discussion though is just that I found them to fall very flat. I, from the moment that I realized that this huge plot hole existed with regards to the tanks and the fact that he didn't have them manned so he could challenge Batman more, I couldn't take him very seriously because the whole time I was like, well, is this going to be implemented into the plot? plot? Like maybe he doesn't actually want to hurt Batman, so he's doing this and he left them unmanned. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense at all. It really doesn't. And after that, he lost a lot of credibility with me and I think with a lot of other players. I didn't really give a crap. So I kind of checked out and I just waited for the Scarecrow moments, which is too bad because I think he could have been really, really cool. But he just he falls flat. And can we also just agree that the fact that the Arkham Knight comes in as the deus ex machina at the end of the game to shoot the gun out of Scarecrow's hand is damn stupid. If he had that gun, why didn't he just shoot Scarecrow? Like why, and why was he waiting so long? Did he have to set that whole thing? It just, again, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It works well for the cutscene and for everything to seem like it's happening all at once, but I just find it kind of stupid. And there's also other plot holes that don't really make a lot of sense. Like the fact that Gordon at the moment where it's revealed that Barbara didn't actually die and that he had just betrayed Batman seemingly. He pulls the gun on Batman and everybody just looks past the fact that Batman has bulletproof armor on and the fact that Gordon shoots him in the chest where it's bulletproof. <laughs> Like, nobody's going to question that. Why didn't they have Batman take off his mask and then shoot him in the forehead? Why didn't they do that? Well, because that would have made sense. That would have made a lot of sense. But no, they don't do that because it doesn't work. Now, you know what? Let's shift and start talking about the Batmobile. I think we've delayed it enough. We've talked about the narrative. We've talked about all that. Let's actually address the elephant in the room. Now, in the developers' words themselves, in all the interviews that I watched in preparation for this critique, what they kept saying pre-launch was that the Batmobile was designed to take the Arkham games to the next level. It's something they always wanted to do but weren't able to do given the hardware limitations of the previous games. One thing that they said in these interviews was that, quote, Arkham Asylum was all about the new combat system. Arkham City was all about the new open world that they were able to build. And Arkham Knight was all about the Batmobile. This is how they honestly felt going into the launch of the game. They thought that the Batmobile was really going to be revolutionary and that people were going to love it so much that it was going to be one of the main selling points of the game. Instead, it backfired so heavily that people felt it was one of the low points of the game. And it's one of the reasons that a lot of people hate the game is specifically because it feels like more of a, a battle tank simulator than it does an actual Batman game. Think I'm making this up? 
Check out this clip from a GameSpot interview where he actually says this very thing. We really wanted to take big risks at every uh, new iteration. So in Arkham City, it was this massive new open world structure. But for Batman Arkham Knight, it's really all about the Batmobile, delivering the, the experience and the promise of driving this legendary car in this legendary city. Adding the Batmobile was something that we were very um, conscious of, that it didn't just feel like it was a bolted on driving section. We didn't want to just throw away everything that we had developed for, for previous games because Batman is, is about using whatever is the most effective tool at the time. So the idea of man and machine really lay at the heart of that. Using the Batmobile when it's appropriate, but also using the abilities of the Batmobile to augment Batman himself. So you would have seen in the demo being able to eject out of the Batmobile to gain insane altitude and then dive down through the streets of Gotham, blah, blah, blah. So the integration of Batman and the Batmobile really lay at the core of the design of Arkham Knight. And this is my problem with the Batmobile. It's not that it isn't well designed. It isn't that it's not well executed as an idea. It's that the Batmobile was designed not around Batman, but rather they shifted Batman to fit with the Batmobile. It, it's the chicken and the egg situation. And unfortunately, in this case, it seems as though the chicken came before the egg which doesn't even make sense. Instead of justifying the Batmobile in the lore and having some sort of situation where instead of a bunch of drones everywhere, they just use the Batmobile for some quick navigation. And if you wanna use it for some Riddler challenges and AR challenges, you can do that. Instead of doing that, which would have made sense, and I think most players would have been fine with, they made it a staple of the entire game. And then they realized, well, we can't have people in the enemy drones, otherwise Batman's killing them. So they just justified it by saying, well, no, we just won't have people in them. And we'll say that they were they were unmanned to challenge him because that makes so much sense. And players could tell this. And again, I'm not totally sure if it's that they honestly thought that this was going to be a super beloved feature of the game or if they just decided, listen, we've poured so much time and money into the development of this tank that we need to give it a chance. We need to have it as a staple of the game. Maybe it was an executive over at Warner Brothers that looked at it and said, you know what, we need to try it. We need to give it a shot. We need to put it in the game. Like, so 15, 20% of the game is the Batmobile and Batmobile sections. I don't know what, what happened. Either way, it doesn't work. And honestly, I can't say much about it beyond what's already been said, that it just isn't fun after the first few fights it starts to get boring and everybody keeps waiting for it to be used in a new and exciting way and eventually it's tied into some puzzles and you can do the remote control so that you can use it to take out enemies things like that but beyond the same sort of combat sections it doesn't really do anything and I will say some of the later combat sections are straight up horrible. I was stuck on one combat section, basically the last bat tank section. Like I said, I played on the hardest difficulty for over an hour. I was stuck on it for over an hour on stream because you were only basically able to take one hit and then you were critically injured and any sort of shrapnel, anything that hit you, you were gonna blow up. So you had to play it literally perfectly and it, it just wasn't fun. It, it just wasn't fun. I don't know what else to say. It just goes to show you anything in excess is a bad thing. The Batmobile could have been really cool if it were just used for the Riddler races and stuff, which I personally really enjoyed, and with some of the occasional puzzles with the remote control. Other than that, the Bat Tank fights aren't interesting. They aren't fun. They don't feel like they should be in a Batman game. They just feel out of place.
And at the end of the day, I think the easiest thing I can say is that if the bat tank sections were cut from the game, I don't think it would be any worse. And if anything, it might be a little bit better. And if you can say that about any feature in your game that's a AAA major release, something's wrong. Something is very wrong. Now, as for the combat, I will hand it to Rocksteady in that the free flow combat system has sort of run its course. It was super novel and cool and interesting when it launched with Arkham Asylum back in 2009. But after that, it slowly started to stagnate and stale. We've seen that in, for instance, Shadow of War, where the combat system, even though it's free flow, feels fairly stagnated. And in Arkham Origins, it was polished up a little bit more, but in Arkham Knight, they really cinched everything up. And if I had to use one word to describe it, it is cinched, or maybe streamlined would be another way of putting it. Everything is just polished. There's very little latency between animations playing. Everything's very fast paced. All of the tools work very well together. It, it just feels very clean. They added new finisher moves, as you would expect. Each of the characters that are different and can be played have different finisher moves that are fun and interesting and unique. They did about as much as you could possibly do to keep the fighting sequence and system interesting. And I think that was part of the reason they brought in the Batmobile was specifically because they were worried that it was just going to feel like more of the same if they came in with just more of the free flow combat system. They wanted to bring in something more, something new, something fresh, and that's admirable. You just got to make sure that it's fun. They added in new enemy types, such as the medic class, which actually can revive previously downed opponents. So if you're one of those players that tries to just jump around the rafters and slowly take people out over the course of like 30 minutes, that's not going to work anymore because the medics will actually come and revive them. So you're constantly fighting an uphill battle. So it encourages you to play a little more riskily, to be more aggressive. And I think that's something that ends up being more fun for a lot of players. So I think that's good. And I will also say the sidekick fights where you go in, for instance, with Catwoman and you're able to fight side by side and with a single press of a button you're able to switch between the two characters and finish with each other and it it works amazingly well it's incredibly well polished I I just I freaking love how they did this how they implemented it in fact I loved it so much I wish that they had used it more in the game and it I think goes to show that a free flow combat system in a game with like two or three characters playing with you as sidekicks for instance, like a Suicide Squad game, could really work well. The Predator sections, in other words, the stealth sections, are really well polished. Uh, they all are done very, very well. The AI feels relatively smart, as smart as you could expect it to be. Everything works very well. No glitches like we saw in Arkham Origins. Again, if you want to see my gripes with that game linked below. They also threw the player some new tools such as the voice synthesizer where you can, for instance, have Harley calling to her guards to go and check out an area, in which case you are setting them up straight for a trap, which is kind of cool and allows you to use a lot more of your weapons and abilities that you wouldn't normally be using. And I, I thought that was kind of cool. And they also add a new fear takedowns, which plays into the whole broader meta theme of the game, which is that fear controls everybody. And these are basically just takedowns where you're able to take out like three-ish people all at once. And it helps pair up against a lot of the other design choices that they made with regards to the combat, which is a big increase in terms of quantity of enemies on screen at a given time. So instead of just trying to increase the health pools of each enemy, they tried to add in a lot more people. And to balance that out, they give you fear takedowns where you can take out like three at a time. Some people have gripes with these fear takedowns, saying that they're 
inelegant and that they aren't fun or that they make the game too easy. And if that's the case, I would say play it on the hardest difficulty because the whole point of the fear takedowns is that you're taking down three of the like 30 opponents that are on screen and that you're fighting in an arena. And even then the fear takedown has to be set up very precisely in order for it to work because it can be interrupted. And even if you do a fear takedown, if there's one guy left behind afterwards, you have to be careful because you can only really withstand uh, withstand one single shot from a sniper, for instance, otherwise you're dead, again, on the higher difficulties. I don't want to go too much into the idea that there's a right way and a wrong way to play certain games, but I think there are ways that tend to lend themselves to using more of the game's mechanics and playing it truer to what the developers expected you to do with regards to the gameplay difficulty. And if they're gonna have difficulty sliders, which are something I've already come out and condemned, I don't like difficulty sliders in games. I think you should be able to choose and stick with it throughout the whole game because then the onus is on the developer to balance the game properly throughout the entire experience. But you know, that's a topic for another video, a video I already made. One thing that changed was the design of side quests and the main story quest, which has always been kind of weird in the Arkham games because they've always been sort of smaller side activities that you just are kind of supposed to figure out yourself. But what they did this time around was that they added it into a wheel that you pull up and are able to select different side quests from. And initially it seems like it should be okay, but it's just kind of weird. And I guess it was meant to try to prevent you from pulling up a big menu and queuing up which one you want. But to me, it, it just never felt quite right. I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't know how to explain it. It just didn't feel right. But I, I fully admit that this is completely personal and subjective. Like this, this is not an objective criticism. I just don't like that the quest is set up in a wheel format. I find it kind of stupid. I don't like it. You can love it. I personally don't. I prefer the list where I can read in-depth descriptions of what I'm doing. I just prefer that. And you can't talk about any sort of Arkham game without addressing the Riddler challenges. And there's a lot. In this game, there are 243 individual challenges from the Riddler that he offers you. And again, if you want 100% complete the game and get access to the final true ending yourself, you have to complete all 243 of them. And they put some effort into these. Some of these are actually pretty tricky and time consuming. I love them. My personal favorites are the bat car races. I, I personally really like them. I just find them fun. The Batmobile controls very, very well. I think it's polished. I, I find the idea of swapping between the platforms kind of intriguing and requires some decent timings. But again, completely subjective. I personally just enjoy them. There's other quests such as the serial killer quest where you go and you like inspect bodies and you try to hunt down the serial killer who has a love for opera music and things like that, which again, I think were done very, very well. They gave each of these side quests the time of day I just think that they have a really weird way of pacing them where if you want to go and, for instance, track down the serial killer, instead of following a series of clues to its conclusion, you're expected to do one portion of the investigation and then two or three hours of gameplay later, they'll unlock the next section of it. So then you go and investigate that. Then two or three hours later, you go and invest investigate the next section. And it can work fairly well. I Again, personally, I just don't like that method of employing quest markers where they're timed between and behind certain doors within the main story. I understand sometimes that's necessary. I prefer to just be like, oh, I'm really interested in hunting down this serial killer. I'm going to go figure that out. And then I go and I figure it out until it's done. I don't like being told, okay, now wait a couple hours and then we'll reveal it. 
but they don't even say that transparently. Often it's just, well, keep exploring the city. And if I see something, I'll let you know. Great. Great. I love that. I don't. I hate it. But lastly, the very last thing I want to discuss is the Joker, um, because I feel like he's the guy that comes in and absolutely steals the show, as Mark Hamill has a tendency of doing. He has some moments and one-liners in this game that are just absolutely hilarious, like talking about how he swept Barbara off her feet, like, so savage. He's a constant presence as you explore the city. He pops up on rooftops. You'll see billboards replace the initial image that was there earlier in the game with his likeness as the game goes on. It's really well done. It's very, very subtle in many cases, and it's very clearly put in front of you in other instances where he has a very dark joke to put forward, and they're all delivered fantastically well. They're hilarious. And I'll be honest, I think that's contributory to part of the reason why at the end of the game I felt kind of sad that he was gone because I really enjoyed having him with me throughout the whole main campaign, constantly commenting on everything that was happening. And to lose him then at the very end felt kind of empty. But again, I think that that was part of the design choice because Batman probably also feels a little empty to no longer have his his, uh, nemesis (laughs) there anymore. You know, I, I think it works very well. Crispy. But in summation, I think Batman Arkham Knight is probably on a technical level the most impressive game in the entire franchise. I think the graphics are far and away some of the most impressive graphics we've ever seen in a game, even to this day. I think the gameplay is fairly polished. I think everything is done remarkably well, except for that glaring issue, which is the Batmobile and of course the PC port at launch. Now, everybody knows that the PC port was terrible. Everybody knows that the Batmobile was awful and it didn't make sense. The question is just whether or not those things are so bad that they ruin the experience of the game completely and entirely. And personally, I don't think they do. I love the game so much, honestly, I would go back through it right now on stream if I had the time. By the way, another reason to follow me on Twitch is that I just got the review code approved for Greedfall, so I'm gonna be playing that game over there on Twitch. If you wanna check that out, make sure to follow me, sub, all that fun stuff, links below. And here I'm gonna be a little bit of a hypocrite because I think it's important that I actually offer my final perspective and advice on how I guess, to play through Arkham Knight for the best possible experience. Because obviously there's this glaring issue with the Batmobile. And I've said before, I hate dynamic difficulty sliders because they can be abused to change the overall way that the game is built compared to how the developer intended the player to approach it. That's true, and I still stand by that insofar as the assumption is granted that the way that the game was designed by the designer is the best way to play it, is the best way the game can be, which often is the case because they're the ones that designed it and poured years of effort into polishing that experience. But once we land with a game that is in its pure form with the Batmobile, not as fun as if you play it without the Batmobile, then we can start to abuse it, abuse the difficulty slider so that we get the experience that's actually more engaging and more fun for the overwhelming majority of players. So what I would suggest is giving Batman Arkham Knight a shot. I really think it is worth 
a shot, especially because you can get it for very cheap nowadays. It goes on sale constantly down from uh, $20. It, it drops to like 15 all the way down to five during some sales. And I would suggest playing through it on the hardest possible difficulty for the first couple hours, giving that a shot. And if you hate the Batmobile sections, every time those pop up, just drop the difficulty down to the easiest possible difficulty, knock that out, and then bring it right back up to the hardest. I know it sounds stupid, but it's the only way I could think of of skipping those Bat Tank sections at least relatively quickly and not bothering with them. Just skip right past them, jump forward and continue about your day. And you know, I, I don't want to act as though it is far and away just a game breaking, terrible mechanic and it's awful. It, it's well done insofar as it could have been well done. It's just not something that feels at home or as though it should be in a Batman Arkham game. It just feels out of place. That's the best way I can describe it. Some people love it. People who love mech games and love tank sort of games and militaristic, you know, tactics games where you have to dodge constantly, those types of things. Those people love the game. Those people love uh, the, the Bat Tank and everything that they did with it. I just personally don't, and a lot of other people don't, and a lot of viewers on my channel, I'm sure, also don't like it. But at the end of the day, I still stand by my decision that Batman Arkham Knight is not the worst game in the franchise. And if I had to rank the entire Arkham series, are you ready? I've critiqued all of the games at this point. I can have them all linked below this video. If I had to rank all of them from beginning to end, this is what it would be. At the very bottom, I would put Batman Arkham Origins. I just don't like it. I think it's broken. I think it's not very polished. I think it's a copy and pasted mess from Arkham City. My time playing it, it was a glitch-filled mess as well. I just personally don't enjoy it. That doesn't mean you're wrong for enjoying it. It just personally doesn't connect with me. Above that, I put Batman Arkham Asylum. It's got a lot of nostalgia feel for me, but it is an older game. It's not as drawn out as a lot of the others, and it's very linear. Above that, we're left with Batman Arkham City and Batman Arkham Knight, both of which I think are fantastically well-built and very well done. For me personally, maybe I'll change my mind after some more reflection, after some more thought. But for me, my favorite in the series is still Batman Arkham City. Now, I'll be very transparent in the fact that I have a huge nostalgic and emotional attachment to Arkham City. It's the first game I ever 100% completed. I love it to death. That's part of the reason that I think it takes the cake for me because it was part of my childhood. I absolutely love that game. But Arkham Knight, honestly, if I were to play through it again, it might rank a little bit higher, especially now what I that I know what I'm getting myself into with regards to the tank battles. I would probably try to skip past them and then play the rest of the game because the rest of the game really is fantastically well built. And, you know, all of this just goes to show that you can't just shove a feature down the player's throat. You can't just expect them to enjoy it because you put a lot of money into it. A big budget does not always a fantastic game make, and there's a lot more that goes into it. And developers have to be humble enough to accept and admit when certain features and certain design choices are just not working in the game. Batman Arkham Knight was almost killed by the fact that its developers were not humble enough to accept that something they had poured so much time and effort into was just not enjoyable. It almost ruined the entire game for everybody. So moving forward with whatever they're working on next, I hope that they're able to accept that they 
made some mistakes with Harkham Knight to say the least, learn from it and move forward and release once again, one of the best games of the generation, just like we were saying back when Batman Arkham City launched. I think they're capable of it. And especially if they launch it as a launch title for the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Scarlet, whatever it ends up being called, I think we could be in for a real treat. But that's all from me. Thank you so much for watching me and Khaleesi both. Oh, shoot. Me and Khaleesi both, thank you. I don't know if you can see her. She's hanging out right there. We both thank you for watching, honestly and truly. We love you very, very much. If you enjoyed the video, hit the like button. It actually does help. I know YouTubers say that. It actually does. I did the math. And if you want to see more videos like this, leave a comment as to what game you'd like to see me critique next and subscribe. Make sure you ring the bell as well. Beyond that, if you want to see more videos like this made more frequently, make sure to support me over on Patreon for just over three cents a day. You can support me, get access to all of these critiques early and before everybody else, behind the scenes, peeks and sneaks and whatever you want to call it. I know that doesn't make sense. Or if you don't like Patreon, just hit the join button right next to the subscribe button. That works too. You get access to all the same stuff. Follow me on Twitch, all that stuff, Twitter, all that. I love you very much. I'll see you guys in the next video. I love you. Peace out. Hugs and kisses. Bye-bye. I've got you under my skin. I'd sacrifice anything come what might for the sake of having you near in spite of a warning voice that comes in the night and repeats, repeats in my ear.